0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's very interesting and exciting being here on the couch with my guest today, who uh, you will love. His name, Byron Allen. And if that name isn't the kind of name that you know everywhere in the world, there's something wrong with you because this is a guy that has been a household name In show business for probably, I'm going to say, 35 years. And the reason why he's a household name in show business is because he's done something that probably no other person has ever done in his likely uh, situation because he has roots in my uh, world because he started as a stand up comedian. And for those of you who don't know and want to know a little bit of history here, I'm going to be interviewing a man who is the youngest stand-up comedian ever to have performed on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And to give you some perspective about what I'm going to talk about in this cold open is if I have my facts correct, he was actually offered to do The Tonight Show when he was 17. But he turned it down. He said no to The Tonight Show as a teenager. Probably in my mind because he thought to himself, you know, I know I'm good, but if I say no and I do it when I'm ready and when I feel I can do the best job possible, that's when I want to do it. Which is a metaphor for a lot of things we talk about on this podcast because... For me, I've always been in a situation where I felt that the power of no always can help you in any way that you're negotiating something or you're thinking about what kind of job you want to do. If you do great work, people are always going to want you and they're always going to want what you have to put out there. And Byron Allen started as a stand up comedian but has become one of the most unbelievable entrepreneurs there is that you could ever imagine. I mean, he probably has, we're going to talk about it, but I believe he has close to 27 or 30 shows on the air. I think he has six or seven multi-channel networks. And this is a guy who started as a stand-up comedian. This is a guy who moved here from Detroit and had a small apartment, went to school at Fairfax High School, and really, as they say in the lottery commercials, had a dollar and a dream. The only difference between the lottery commercial and Byron Allen is that he didn't have a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but I think... The power of no with him has always been and always gotten them where he's going because he's always been a great salesperson. One of the things you notice if you watch stand-up comedians, there's a few different kinds of comedians. There's the comedians who have incredible material, but they're not great salespeople on stage. There's the comedians who don't have great material, but they're incredible salespeople on stage. And then every once in a while you run into somebody like a Richard Pryor or a Dave Chappelle or a Louis CK or a Bill Cosby or an Eddie Izzard, who is a great, great performer and has extraordinary material. And I think Byron Allen, I think he'll agree with me when I say this, I don't think he ever accused himself of being the next Richard Pryor, but I do believe he felt his material was way far and above the level of most comedians out there. And he felt that his salesmanship on stage was way, way above everybody out there. And the material that he had was in a way so, so great, the point of view at the time when he was a young comedian that it led to an entrance that you know took him to a place where it was incredible. And he had a dream early on, which he's going to talk about. And a lot of people have this dream. And I remember the first time I went to Dane Cook's apartment in Hollywood at the La Fontaine. And he went to the bathroom and I did something I probably shouldn't have done, but he was a client of mine. I, I was sort of standing in the doorway of of his office where he had a little office in his apartment. And I noticed these post-it notes all over the place. And I got a little bit closer to them, and I sort of pulled one up and looked at it and said, I'm going to have my own HBO comedy special. And then I'd look at another post-it note and would say, I'm going to star in my own sitcom. And I'd see another post-it note and it'd say, I'm going to headline theaters and arenas as a comedian. And he had the vision of what he was going to do from an early age. He wrote it down. He thought hard about how he was going to do it. And one of the things about Dane that was fascinating was the power of no with him. And I'll give you one example and how it relates to Byron Allen. I booked him in a corporate gig one time. It was a huge corporate gig where there were three shows in three days, and he was going to be paid $150,000, and he hadn't even really been in the business. It was one of the greatest deals that I ever made for a comedian who would only done like Letterman or something like that, and I was so excited about it. And I put the contract together and I tell them, listen, what do you want him to do? We just want him to do what he does, what we saw him do at the shows. And so he does his first show, and um, it's an amazing success. People are coming up to him for like an hour afterwards afterwards. Great show, great show. And afterwards the president of the corporation comes into the dressing room and says, Listen, great job, Dane. But um I was wondering for the next show and the next show, if would you would you mind just um not being as blue as you were? Would you mind not swearing a little bit? Because, you know, we'd really like to keep it clean and whatever. And as I recall, Dane Cook took the guy's check for $50,000 and tore it up in front of him and put it on the table and said, keep your money and cancel me for those next two gigs because I'm not going to do them. You hired me to be who I am and that's who I was today and the crowd loved it and they'll love me tomorrow and they'll love me the next day, but I'm not going to compromise who I am. And I think what's great about Byron Allen is the fact that when The Tonight Show called the greatest single show probably in history, and at the time the only place really where a stand-up comedian could show his wares, they ask him, and as he has the wherewithal as a teenager to actually say... I'm not going to do this, whereas three years beforehand, if I'm not mistaken, as his mother was doing publicity for NBC, he would sneak onto to the Tonight Show stage when Johnny wasn't there and when no one was there, and he would sit in Johnny's chair, and he would visualize what it would be like to host a show like that, what it would be like to be a stand-up comedian as he walked up to the mark on the floor where the comedian was to stand, Yet three years later, when the dream came true, just like Dane Cook, when the dream came true of finally making the kind of money that he thought he could make, if it didn't go the way he wanted, the variables weren't the way he needed them to be, he had the confidence in himself to say, you know what, I can wait till people will do things the way I think they should be and when I'm ready. And so the lesson here for all of you listening is this. Don't always jump at the first opportunity. If you have the confidence in yourself and the confidence in your talent, wait it out, stick it out, make sure you're ready. And when you're ready, you will destroy it. You will kill it. You will succeed and you will find greatness. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
2: Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
2: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? i the air!
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am pumped. I am sitting across from Byron effing Allen. I say effing because I can't use the F word because Byron Allen is so clean and so respected. There is not any swearing anywhere around him allowed. But I want to share something with you before I introduce this guy. I have asked him to be on this podcast no more than 25 times and no less than 17 times and he i finally broke him down and got him to come here and i'm so honored that he's here and i'm going to give him the proper introduction uh he and you guys may fall asleep during this introduction because i have literally like three pages of, of 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 stuff on this guy it's incredible but Byron Allen is the founder and chairman and CEO of Entertainment Studios, Inc. He started the company from his dining room table in 1993 with no capital and no investors. He oversees production of original programming, advertising, sales, and distribution. Um, and he has a company here that is that has a syndicated business comprised of 26 television series And I believe, uh, is it 7, 24-hour cable networks or 6? 7. There you go. Byron is a 35-year entertainment veteran born in Detroit, Michigan. Moved to Hollywood, like I said, to Fairfax High School and attended the University of Southern California. He began doing stand-up comedy as a teenager. And as I said, his mother got a job as a a publicist, I believe, at uh, NBC Studios. And where he was free to roam the sound stages, Byron always would sneak into the Carson desk and play talk show host. At age 14, Allen began performing stand-up comedy and appear on amateur nights at comedy clubs throughout the L.A. area. Comedian Jimmy Walker, that's right, Dynamite from Good Times, saw Alan stand up act and was so impressed that he invited the 14-year-old comedian to join his comedy writing team for a show, which was comprised of a few guys who were, you know, just little guys in the business like Jay Leno and David Letterman. At 18, he made his debut on The Tonight Show. As I said, the distinction, the first and youngest stand-up comedian ever to perform on the show. Uh, Watching Byron Allen's network television debut were the producers of NBC's Real People. Again, you do great work, people see it, you rise. They were so taken with his comfortable, relaxed style that they made him an offer the very next day to co-host a show. So at 18, he was co-hosting a television show. While he was getting his feet wet as a television personality, he was also learning the ins and outs of the TV business in production, the business of advertising and syndication. And he learned this in the trenches by personally calling station owners, program directors, and advertisers one by one, market by market, from his dining room table when he was selling his first television show. His foray into production began in L.A. in 93 when he founded Entertainment Studios, and he called all those people to launch his first series, The Entertainers, with Byron Allen, a weekly one-hour series profiling the current stars of film and television, which, believe it or not, I believe is still running today. He's been an integral part of Entertainment Studios, signing of some of the top talent in the entertainment business. And let me tell you a little bit about entertainment studios, because this is amazing. It's a fully vertically integrated content, media, and global distribution company. The seven networks that he works on that are all HD networks feature Emmy Award-winning Cars TV, Pets TV, Recipe TV, Comedy TV, which just got a deal with Suddenlink, which uh, we're going to talk about, which is amazing. The television division produces, distributes, and sells advertising for 32 television programs, making one of the largest independent producers distributor of first-run syndicated television programs for broadcast television stations. I know this is long, but this is valuable. Entertainment Studios, which Byron run, provides content to broadcast television stations, mobile devices, multimedia platforms, and the World Wide Web. Their mission is to provide excellent programming to their viewers, online users, and Fortune 500 advertising partners which includes partnerships with Walmart, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Procter & Gamble, and so many others, Johnson & Johnson, Hershey's, Toyota, Nestle's, Allstate, and they have a library, get this, of over 4,000 hours of own content across multiple genres. Byron's company, Entertainment Studios, was one of the first companies to achieve television everywhere with its cloud based television delivery platform, SmartTV.com. Chairman and CEO Byron Allen, who sits before me, again, he founded this company from his dining room table. And now he has beautiful headquarters right down the street in Los Angeles and in New York. And in 2009, it should be noted that Byron became the first television entrepreneur to own and launch a portfolio of over six 24-hour HD television networks simultaneously—the longest introduction in history. But I know we're going to have great things to talk about. Please welcome my guest today: the man, the myth, the legend, Byron Allen.
1: <laughs> well, well, Barry, thank you. That is, uh, yeah, that was a long intro, but boy, was that an excellent one. Thank you, buddy. Uh, that. I I I, I tell you, no one can live up to that. (laughs) Well, you can.
0: This is really incredible having you here because, to me, like a lot of people out there who listen to the podcast, they sometimes struggle with what they want to do. They think they know what they want to do, but they're not really sure. And I'm curious with you because we know the story of when you were a teenager with your mom moving from Detroit, but we don't really know what was happening in Detroit, what kind of life you had, and what was the first moment that happened that actually gave you the idea of being in show business? Because I don't believe that it was the NBC thing. I believe you had the germ in you in Detroit for some reason, uh, seeing something there. Could you go and tell us about your life there in Detroit and what happened before you got in this
1: business? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, First of all, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I really appreciate your patience. I'm, believe it or not, I've been looking forward to this. And uh, you so say that now? No, I, it's no, it's it's great being here. You know, I was born in in Detroit, Michigan, in uh, 1961, and Detroit in the '60s, uh, unbelievable uh, place, uh, it, just magnificent. When you think about Detroit in the '60s, we made the cars for the world, and that in itself was spectacular. My father worked at Henry uh, at Ford Motor Company. I was born in Henry Ford Hospital. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company for thirty something years, and uh, my mother and I we and my father we had one car. As an only child, we would I would drop him off and to do the night shift. I hope it was a Ford. <laughs> it was. <laughs> he, he definitely drove a Ford car to a Ford factory to drop your dad <laughs> off at three in the morning with his lunch pail. And uh, my grandfather worked at Great Lake Steel, and all the, the men in my neighborhood worked at one of the factories. And as a kid, I couldn't wait to grow up to gr- work at one of the factories with my grandfather or my father or, or my buddy's uh, fathers down the street. That was a, a badge of honor and just something spectacular. Just, you know, my grandfather went to Great Lake Steel probably— 30-something years every day, never called in a day sick, and got to work an hour early every day to teach himself how to read. And he read the newspaper, and he would drink his, th- his coffee out of a thermos. And probably his best year may have been 10,000, 15,000 a year, if that. And uh, this was the 60s. Uh, we made music for the world. There was this little record company called Motown. And hit after hit after hit. And, uh, you know, I would see these Motown acts in the neighborhood. And I just assume everybody had Smokey Robinson and the Temptations and uh, Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Four Tops in their neighborhood. <laughs> so, but I didn't know because I'm, you know, I'm seven years old. My grandfather <clears throat> on my dad's side owned, uh, started a skating rink. Roller, skating, roller skate very entrepreneurial, and uh, he built this skating rink brick by brick, and this was the skating rink in Detroit for the black kids. And I was roller skating before I was walking, because everybody, all the kids and the grandkids had to work at granddaddy's skating rink, and everybody had different jobs. You take the tickets at the door They let the kids in. Um, you would uh, uh, rent out uh, the, the skates uh, so that they could get you mop up the floor. I was a, a floor guard and a floor guard. I would stand in the center of the of the roller rink with a whistle on. And if a kid fell, that meant other kids would fall and they could stack up to the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> so so I had to blow the whistle. And if I blew the whistle, my uncle would take the needle off the record. My Uncle Earl, who played all the music, my Uncle Earl would take the needle off the record and then the kids would stop skating and they would stop stacking up to the ceiling. (laughs) So that was one of my first jobs. And a number of these Motown acts would come and perform at the roller skating rink. And I was always impressed. And uh, I remember one time my mother... And my grandmother put me and my uncle, who's like my brother, Terrence, he's four years older than me. And they, they took us out to the suburbs and they showed us where wealthy white people lived. And there was the, there was the Ford family and the, you know, the, the Dodge family and the Chryslers and all these industrialists and these unbelievable mansions. And they said, and, and in that house, in that mansion is Barry Gordy. And I remember that. And I remember thinking he lives there, and they said, yes, and he has a swimming pool and he has a bowling alley. And I remember thinking, "I can live like this." And I was like, "Yeah." And I just thought, I started studying him a little more and understanding what he did. <clears throat> so I really kept my eye on 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 Barry Gordy early on, seven years old. And my mother and I came out here. In 1968, when I was seven years old, T.L.A. Now, you say your mother and you. So my, my mother and father got a divorce. When you were how old? Seven years old. And so we came out for a two. We, we, we had the Detroit riots. But he know. stayed in Detroit. He stayed in Detroit, continued to work at, 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 at Ford Motor Company.
0: Now it had to be, like, I mean, very traumatic.
1: Y- yeah, it was. I mean, you don't realize at the time. You, 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 it's more when you look back. Right, My father's a great guy. We have a terrific relationship and I love him dearly. And it was one of those things he and my mother simply didn't get along. And it wasn't a a reflection on me or how she felt about me or how he felt about me. It was those two at that time in their lives could not get along. Thank God there was at least one night they could get along. That's right. That I'm grateful for. Now were you an only child? (laughs) Only child. Only child. And uh, my mother had me 17 days after her 17th birthday. So uh, I tell everybody I have two high school diplomas and my father was in his early 20s. When I first
0: met your mother, I I, I I'm telling you <laughs> They this.
1: think they think she's my sister.
0: I really do, you know, uh, Byron's for those of you who don't know, Byron's mom is the executive producer of um a show that I, I I'm fortunate enough to to work on with uh, Byron called Mr. Box Office and she executive produces a number of uh, shows that Byron does. And when I first met her, literally, I, I, I felt like she was younger than you. All the places that she had a chance to move to.
1: Why did she move to Hollywood? She had taken a train trip as a young girl to, across the country uh, to L.A. and to visit my grandfather's uh, sisters. And uh, the porters were very nice to her, which is nice. And she got here and she just loved the weather and thought, I always want to come back here and go to UCLA. And she wanted to go to med school. And, uh, when we, you know, we, it was tough back in, in Detroit in the, in the 60s. We had the riots and, you know, I had National Guard and tanks coming down my street and, you know, get off the, you know, get off the uh, street after the street lights turn on, you know, curfew, they'd actually shoot you and ask questions later. You have to get away from the German shepherd dogs so Have the whole nine yards. So when you, when you have tanks come down your street and military walking on your front lawn, it, you want to go take a break. So we come out, <laughs> we came out for a two week vacation and uh, I went to the theaters, movie theater, and I saw a trailer for a movie, 101 Dalmatians. They said, coming to this theater. And when I went home, my mom said, do you want to go back to Detroit? And I said, no. And she didn't ask me why. Well, the reason I didn't want to go back is I didn't realize that the movie 101 Dalmatians would also be in Detroit. I thought it was just going to be in that theater. (laughs) (laughs) So so seven years old, we end up staying. And I remember, um, you know, meeting some kids and they say, you want to go swimming? And I said, sure. They said, all right, well, well, you know, this is my address. Come on over. And I thought I'd go over to this kid's house and we would walk over to the community swimming pool, which is what I did in Detroit. And you would walk 10 minutes or wherever it was to go to the community pool. And I walked and I knocked on his door and he opened the door and all the kids were in the backyard in his swimming pool. And I'd never seen this before. And I thought, this is amazing. You have a swimming pool in your backyard. And it was a neighborhood that's known as View Park Baldwin Hills. Um, A lot of, uh, uh, to this day, you know, very affluent African-Americans. Um, and I remember I and Tina Turner lived like down the street. Uh, uh, Ray Charles lived across the street. Uh, Johnny Cochran lived around the corner. So I met Johnny Cochran when I was a kid. All of these very uh, successful lawyers and entertainers, they lived... In this neighborhood. And I had never seen that before as well because I, and they all had very nice cars and they wore suits. You know, I'm coming from a place where, you know, I am blue collar, you know, that is my grandfather. That is my father. And, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I just had never seen that before. So it changed my perspective and just how to look at things differently, you know? Um, so I was fortunate that, you know, my mother, you know, very focused. Uh, she, she ended up going to UCLA. And she ended up getting into UCLA Film School and ultimately getting her master's in in film and TV. And she wanted a job at NBC. And she went to NBC and she asked for a job. And they said, no, we don't have a position for you. And she started to walk out and then she turned around and said, well, do you have an intern program? And they said, no, we don't. And she said, well, would you start one with me? And that moment and that question changed the trajectory of our lives because they said yes, and she was an intern at NBC. And because she became an intern there, she was able. Then somebody came up and said, "Well, there's an opening in the tour guide uh, department. You can give tours." So, given the fact that you know she's a young mother with this seven, eight-year-old kid, whatever age I am at this point. <clears throat> could not afford, obviously, babysitter nanny. So especially in the summertime after school, I would go to NBC with her. And it was there that I fell in love with comedy and with television because it was there at NBC. And at this point, um, yeah, I'm my I'm young kid, 12, 13 years old. I'm, uh, um, you know, this is in the 70s, in the uh, early to mid 70s. And it was there that I would go from studio to studio to studio and watch how they created and made television. So I would watch them tape The Tonight Show. I would watch Johnny Carson pull into his parking lot, his parking space every day at two o'clock. And he would turn the corner like clockwork onto that lot at two o'clock. And he would get out of his whatever white Corvette or whatever car he had, And he would get out with his brown paper bag lunch and he would bounce up to his office and he would say, how you doing, kid? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'd always happen to be near his parking space and I always (laughs) just kind of wait for two o'clock and I swear I would just turn my head and sure enough, there's my hero turn in the corner yeah it's just like right it's like a western hundreds of times you would say how you doing kid?" how you doing kid <laughs> and that was it. how you doing kid and he would come and he was always nice and you know, you know you know he'd do his thing hello how you doing kid right and he'd walk upstairs and you wouldn't see him again and he wouldn't come back around he wouldn't come back down until uh about 5 25 and he stayed away from everybody then he'd go behind the curtain and then five thirty on clockwork. Dun, 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 boom. Walk out. Do his monologue. Knock it out of the park. And show was over at six thirty. And he would back upstairs, un, you know, change his clothes and back downstairs, heading towards his car, six forty five. And he was in that white Corvette heading back to uh, Malibu no later than six fifty. At that by seven o'clock, The studio, which had close to 500 people in it, over 500 people, just over 400 in the audience alone, was completely empty with the exception of a janitor and me. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to walk out there, I used to walk out there, stand on his mark, because he had a special mark he had a special mark that was just for him that was lit for him and i would stand there and they would leave his monologue on a board because what johnny would do johnny would take his 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 uh, cue cards and lay them on a board that ran across the studio so if joke 2 didn't work the way he wanted to he would say to himself, well, I'm not going to do joke three because it's a follow up to joke two. And he would skip over to joke four. So he had created the system. And that's why if you look at those tapes of Johnny, you see him glancing down and he's glancing. So you'll see at the top of the monologue, he's glancing down to the left. And then as time goes on, he's glancing down to the right because he has gone. the He's gone across the studio because the cue cards are laid on a board that go all the way from left to right. It was a brilliant and I used to stand there and do his monologue and I used to do it every night and just go from left to right and just stand there in that spot and then I go sit behind the desk and I would just sit there. And the guys knew me because they saw me there with my mom. They knew who I was. They're like, "That's Carolyn's kid. That's Carolyn's kid." So the guys, the you know, the security guards, the you know, Floyd, the Susan guy. God bless Floyd. Uh, you know, all, they would sit there and they would be my guest, and that was it. So I go watch Johnny Carson, and then I go across the hall and I would watch Red Fox do Sanford and Son, and I would watch him walk out there and he would I watch him all week make it funnier work the joke and then I go around the corner across the hall and I would watch Freddie Prince do cheek on a man and then I go over to the next studio and I would watch Rich Little do his special and then I go to another studio and I watch George Burns do his and then occasionally I popped in over at the soap operas and checked out the pretty girls and then I go <laughs> and I just kept going from studio to studio and then I would go over and I watch Flip Wilson do the Flip Wilson show. And then he would have on some young, funny comic named Richard Pryor, and he and Richard would do a sketch and uh, they're trying to scam the insurance man and I'm watching them rehearse this and Richard and Flip that's not funny let's do this let's do that And alright here's the insurance man we're going to get the money you know he rings the doorbell and you know and and, and Flip says to Richard are you ready are you ready we're going to get this money and, and Richard says and you know uh, he, you know he did you, he did you put no Flip says did you put the ketchup all over you so you're bleeding <laughs> he goes oh I couldn't find ketchup so I used mustard <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh And then I would watch Bob Hope do his specials. And Bob Hope would come in after Johnny taped his show. They would bring down his curtain. So it had a different look and pattern, and he would do his monologue in front of Johnny's audience that had just seen a a taping of The Tonight Show. And that's how Bob would do his monologues, and then it would air the following week on a Bob Hope special. So as a kid, I watched all these mechanics and all these wheels turn and how they moved and the logistics and how they got things done. And I watched the negotiations of the network executives who would come down and negotiate, don't say this, you can't do this, can't do that. I mean, it got hot around there when Richard Pryor had. At his his variety show because they gave him about a half a dozen episodes and those executives were camped out in the hallway. I watched all of these personalities, Brandon Tartikoff and Fred Silverman and, and Grant Tinker. I watched all these executives interact with the talent, work with the producers. I watched the producers get really uh, headstrong. If you don't uh, leave me alone on this joke then you're gonna run a test pattern because I'm not gonna deliver the show. Major, major wars throw in five jokes that they knew shouldn't be on network television so they would negotiate out four of the jokes so they can get the one they wanted. <laughs> all those games. All right, I really want this joke in, so let's put in five that are really bad so I can just get rid of four and then I'll keep this one. Just watched all that stuff and it's just invaluable. You just watching, You're just sucking it in and you're watching it. And then these little conversations... Like I would hear that, you know, the executives would say, well, Bob Hope will be on television until the end of time because Bob Hope plays golf with all his advertisers and his advertisers love Bob Hope. And Bob will always be on television because he's the only star who knows his advertisers. And I learned then 12 years old know the advertisers <laughs> <laughs> all of that stuff flip wilson you know just watching flip and just how he would you know really you know he would just tweak it and tweak and i watch him in rehearsal and i just sat in the studio by myself and just watch him on stage and i was it it was it was one of the greatest gifts ever that a child could have. And you were the only child hanging around there. I was the only child. And I, and I, and 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 somebody wrote a book about how they were, you know, a a young, great guy. And he wrote a book and how he was getting kicked out. And my mother stopped the security guards from kicking him out because he was similar to me, but he was not, he was a little older than me. And it was just one of those things. Like it was so, it was the sixties. So special. Here's Detroit making the cars, making the music. Seventies, NBC can't find a hotter studio. Jimmy Comack was wonderful to me and my mother, and Jimmy had um, uh, Cheek on the man, and he had Welcome Back Cotter. Now he Welcome, was the
0: creator of the
1: show. Yes, and because Welcome Back Cotter was on ABC, he said, "Well, I, I've got Chico on the man. I'm taping over at NBC. I still want to tape it over there at NBC." So I was watching them do uh, Welcome Back Cotter as well. So summer of seventy four, I believe it was. There's a comedian on the on the Gladys Knight and the Pips summer show. And I knock on the comedian's door. Relationships.
0: I don't mean to interrupt Byron, but relationships, everybody. Um, guess who's a cast member on First Family, a sitcom that Byron's producing?
1: Oh, yeah. She plays the mother. Gladys Knight plays the president's mother. And uh, so I met her when I was 13 years old, Gladys. Uh, and she was on the—very uh, good, Barry. She was on the— um, Uh, She had her own variety show. It was a summer run because they would do these summer runs then. And there was a comedian on and I go and I knock on his door and I say, sir, that was very funny. I like to I like to be a comedian like you. What should I do? And he says, go to the comedy store. And I said, thank you. And he said, be sure and watch my show, which is going to premiere this fall. And he plays I'm going to play a school teacher, And it was Gabe Kaplan. It was Welcome Back, Hotter. And so I call the comedy store and I thought it was a supermarket for jokes. And, uh, and I call up and I say, yeah, uh, how, how much do you guys sell jokes for? And they like, what are you talking about? And the person, thank God the person was patient with me on the phone. But they said, look, this is a comedy club. And, uh, you know, you, we don't sell jokes. You come here, you perform. And we have Monday night tryout, tryout nights. I say, Monday night trials." Okay, what time I need to get there? They say, you know, people start lining up at 9 in the morning. So I go. I take the bus and I go to the comedy. How old are you? I'm five. 13, 14 years 13, old. 13, so you skip school. Yeah, this is in the summer. It was in the summertime, so I okay. was out of school. So I think I was yeah, four, 13 or 14 years Did old. Did you tell your mother you were going to yeah. go? Oh, yeah, I told, always told her everything. And and and, and uh, so I go up there, and I'm sitting there. You get there at what time? Nine in the morning. How they, many people are in line? Like half a dozen. Jamie Masada from who owns the Laugh Factory. Uh, He was a comedian back then. Yeah, he was. A lot of people don't realize Jamie Masada was a comedian. That's how I first met Jamie. We were standing, we were sitting on the curb together in front of the comedy store, waiting to get to sign up. And you, I would just sit there all day, and I would just wait until Mitzi, who worked the door.
0: Mitzi Shore, Mitzi Shore was the owner of the comedy Polly store. Polly Shore's
1: mother, and Mitzi uh, would she had just gotten the comedy store out of out of a divorce from Sammy Shore, and Sammy Shore was Elvis Presley's opening act, a comedian, and she had just gotten the comedy store, and this is in the seventies, and she gave she I got a, a, she would sign me in at about seven thirty, sweet as she could be, and she and she gave all the comedians two drink tickets. And she says, "Here are your two drink tickets. How old are you?" And I said, "I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm 14." And she says, "Okay, you can only get Coca Cola because <laughs> I can't serve you alcohol, and you have to stay in the back." So I would I would sit on the curb all day until 7:30 at night, and then I would go stand in the back in the alley in the parking structure by the back door until they let me go on, and I would go on at about eight eight thirty. And then I would go home.
0: Which is interesting because this is like all this time you've been in training at NBC watching all these great people Uh from Gabe Kaplan to uh, Carson to Red Fox to Freddie Prinz to George Burns, Flip Wilson, Bob Hope. Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor. You're observing, 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 observing. Then you get to the big show. At the comedy store, where this is your chance to actually make your break and you're not allowed to watch any stand-up comedian on stage. <laughs>
1: That's a great observation. That's a great. Yeah, you know, I uh, I wrote a script. I loved I wrote a script for uh, Sanford and Son when I was fourteen. And the script was Red Fox uh, had mistakenly misunderstood a conversation. Uh, about Ann Esther, and, and he thought she was dying, and so he starts being nice to her, and he actually kisses <laughs> her. And then he's all upset when he finds out it's a misunderstanding. So it's a, it, it was a fun script. The producers were really impressed by it, and I, and I developed a, a, a wonderful friend who read the script, a producer on the show, on Cheek on the Man, uh, David Panich. And David Panich worked, he was a writer on, on laugh a writer on Cheek on the Man, and David Panich said, this is unbelievable, I cannot believe a 14-year-old kid wrote this. And it just, that was a, such an encouragement to me that this man w- who's a major network uh, television comedy writer, he says, these guys aren't going to buy the, the, um, the uh, uh, Sal, Sal Turtle, Tara, Todd and Bernie Ernst, Ernst, Ornstein were the producers of, of, of Sanford and Son at the Time. They said, you know, they're not going to buy it, but they read it, they really like it, but you should keep doing it and you really have something there. So I took the jokes that I had written for that script and I did my first monologue to take to the comedy store. And so I was 14 years old and I sounded like Red Fox. Oh, you look at you know? That. So uh-huh. that was my first monologue, right? So I ended up, and, and and it went well. And uh, you know, I performed for maybe five or 10 people. What's fascinating
0: for our audience is that you're writing a script, a half hour script for the first time in your life at 14. My mind
1: was working overtime. And, and I, did
0: you have did you like take the scripts from these shows and study them at home and yeah. see how they were written? And that,
1: that was the other thing. They they would they would leave the scripts around at the studio. So I take the I take the scripts I pick the scripts up and I take them home after they finished taping. They were just laying around like getting ready to go in the trash. And uh, just like you have that Johnny Carson cue card over there. Yes, we do. Yeah. I, I
0: was wondering when you were looking at the cue card I have framed here, you were looking at it so intently. And now, because of your Johnny Carson story, now I know I'm going to have to sell you one of them.
1: You have to say you have three of them. And that's why I was like, well, okay, show me what the jokes are on the car because I definitely will buy one. You, you I definitely will, have I will, a payday there. I will find so, it. So, I, so I, I said, wow. And so I would take the scripts and I would read them. And I learned how to do it. And also, you know, my mom was very helpful at this point. She's at UCLA film school and she's studying film and TV. So I was just very comfortable with the formats and the genre and all of that. So I started doing stand-up consistently and I kept doing it and I kept going back and I'm there at the comedy store and this is the 70s. So it's very exciting because at this point, comedy clubs pretty much only existed in LA and New York and maybe a little bit in Chicago. So I'm there and I'm performing, and there's uh, this guy. He shows up. He's uh, unknown. He's hairy as he can be, goes on stage as a complete unknown. And 20 minutes later, standing ovation.
0: And that was a guy who also was waiting in line for uh, many, many hours during the day. He was from the San Francisco area. And his name
1: was Robin Williams. That is correct. And so the 70s, and he's sleeping on people's floors. So I'm like 14 years old, and I'm watching Robin Williams as a complete unknown get a standing ovation night after night. And I've never seen that before. An unknown, <laughs> night after night, hit the stage 20 minutes later, everybody on their feet. And and we got
0: 20-minute sets at the Comedy Store. That's right. And in
1: the original room, uh, those of you who don't know the
0: Comedy Store, I want to just set it up for you because it's a... Uh, um, the Comedy Store is like an anomaly because I don't know of any other comedy club like it. It has three stages. So it has the original room, which holds about 200 people. It's mm-hmm. very, very dark. It's painted black. Mm-hmm. And... They do something called a tag team, which is very, very unusual for comedy clubs, which means there's no host. Mm -hmm. So a comedian goes on. He does his 20 minutes. He says thank you, gets applause, and then he brings up the next act on the list. Mm -hmm. They have a smaller venue, which is around 80 seats upstairs, called the Belly Room, Mm -hmm. which does a lot of alternative shows and unique kind of shows. And then they have the main room, which you might recognize from one of Richard Pryor's in concert movies. Um, it holds about four hundred people, and that was a, a stage where only the biggest and the best comedians and the most famous would work normally.
1: Mitzi, please put me in the main room. I'll tell you something. You bring back memories. I remember. I was. I was. Uh, I remember Mitzi short. Uh, coming to me. I'm standing there up front waiting to go on stage. And she says, Byron, I want you to clean out the addict. And this is a very important lesson, extremely important because it goes to one day when I write a book, it'll go to my chapter, position yourself to succeed. And this is one of the first lessons. Um, she says, clean out the attic for me, go clean out. I'm like, Mitzi, I don't want to clean out the attic. I mean, come on, there's a bunch of rats up there and roaches and she's like cobwebs. And she's like, come on, I just need you to clean it out. Help you help, help clean it out. I said, okay, what are you going to do? She says, uh, she says the women are having a tough time following Robin Williams and all these guys who are there and they're really strong and the women are bombing. And it's hurting their self-esteem and it's hurting their confidence and they're dropping out. And she says, I want to create a spot here where it's just women and they can go up and they can fail and they can be protected and they can be nurtured. And that was the belly room. Unbelievable. And so she created the belly room. And at the, at the very beginning was nothing but women. And because of that, you now have, Roseanne Barr and Ellen DeGeneres and all these female comics who went up there and developed their confidence and got their rhythm and got their flow right, where they were just able to just bob and weave and not worry about following all these guys who could be pretty dirty. And so that goes to position yourself to succeed, and that's what she did. She changed the face of comedy many ways, Mitzi. But in the way of for women, that to me was one of the single biggest moves. To And that gave us a whole generation of female comics that we still enjoy today. And she really did that. So when you talk about the three rooms, and then also Mitzi made the room black. So because I asked her, what's up with it's all being black? So you can focus on the comedian. The platform, microphone, spotlight, everything's black and stand-ups hard enough. I want 100% focus on the comedians. And so I just kept doing my stand-up there in the 70s. It was unbelievable. Now, did you ever have to follow Robin? oh everybody did and everybody begged not to <laughs> what was your technique for following robin williams you just bombed <laughs> <laughs> you just wrote it off you know you just that's that's a that's business that's comedy business it's just a write down <laughs> <laughs> tonight is going to suck <laughs> and then that's really it that's it that's how, it.
0: how many comedians beside robin williams in the comedy store
1: did you ever see get a full standing ovation he's the only one i's an unknown i mean i saw other comedy get standing ovations like, you know, Jim Carrey and obviously other comics. But he was the only unknown. Like this is before he ever had one second of television. So you saw that and you just saw these unbelievable comedians come on stage and they would start to go back and forth between L.A. and New York. And so you start to hear this is before the Internet. So the way we heard about other comics is you would hear. It's so funny. I remember. um uh, Uh, Chris Albrecht,
0: Chris Albrecht, who now is the president of stars and the CEO and was the president and chairman and CEO of HBO and actually started his career as a doorman at the improv at 44th and 9th and one of our great guests here on Industry Standard.
1: Love Chris. So Chris is a doorman. Now, here he is. He's running HBO now. I mean, he's running stars now. He's running HBO. And Chris was a doorman at the improv. Right. So there's no Internet. So Chris sees me do stand-up, and he says to me, you know, there's another black comic, right? <laughs> and and I, I go, no. He goes, he goes, he's in New York. I go, really? He goes, yeah, you guys are the same age. I go, really? Okay. How old is he? He goes, oh, he's 18. I go, what's his name? He goes, Eddie. Eddie, what he goes? Eddie Murphy. I said, tell him I said hello. <laughs> I said, so, I said, so that's that's And then and then I go over to the bar and guess who's the bartender at the improv? A guy named Les Moonves, who's <laughs> running now CBS, you know, and making sixty five million a year. And so I, so the doorman is Chris Albrecht, and the and the bartender <laughs> is Les Moonves. And then Chris and Chris makes a point of telling me. Hey, there's another black kid in New York. I'm like, well, great. So, and then I'm staying in the hall and I say, oh, you know, I don't want to follow this guy because he's just so crazy. And he does 20 minutes of, of, of army men having a fight and blowing things up. And i I remember one day I'm standing in the hall waiting to go up and he's like, can I go before you? And I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to follow you. You're just like 20 minutes of crazy. He goes, well, I drive a school bus and I need to get up early and drive these kids to school. Michael Richards. Wow. So Michael hits the stage (laughs) and he just does 20 minutes of sound effects. And and I'm like, like, and then the audience talk about now the audience is cuckoo because now you got to get them back to we're going to now use language here. (laughs) And Michael would go up and he would be brilliant in the whole nine yards. And it was just it was unbelievable that, you know, when you look at like the 70s, the 80s, this time and everybody. And that was the other thing. Uh, Richard, you know, there was a guy. I met this guy. I can't remember his, name, Travis or something. He chases Richard Pryor around forever in a day to record his act, and Richard says, "No, no, 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 no." And one night, Richard is like, whatever, drunk or whatever. He's like, "Man, fine, leave me alone. How much you gonna give me?" And the guy gives him like I don't know a great deal of money to record his act, and that's. Richard Pryor live in concert, the first concert one, the one that people say is the the one to beat, the one. So he records it, but the thing was, up until that point, comedians we had been a freak show. We were just five minutes on Ed Sullivan. We were just five minutes on Merv Griffin. Or the, no one had seen the art form ninety minutes. So that was the first 90-minute To the best of my knowledge, film. that was when people really saw the art form of stand-up comedy. And this promoter said, hey, the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to film Richard's act, and I'm going to put him in a thousand theaters. And he 4 all the theaters, four wall. I mean, he went and bought the theaters. He rented the theaters for that week and said, "This is my Richard Pryor movie," and he just and this and he paid. And
0: Richard, he would take the door. So what he, they did was a four wall deal in personal appearances, right. and in film, right. As you pay for the space, right, you get the door.
1: That's right. He took. He paid for the theater because he couldn't book it. He couldn't convince these theater owners put this black comic in your theater doing stand. And all he's doing is stand up for ninety minutes. This guy knew. Hey, if I record Richard and I put him in these theaters, especially in these black neighborhoods, this guy ended up doing in the late seventies over thirty million at the box office or something. Like there's some crazy and the DVDs sell forever. And, and he recorded
0: I, and if I remember correctly, Richard Pryor made a deal that was a buyout. I don't believe he got a percentage of the of the situation on the first one, but then he had to renegotiate after the, that one. And
1: That I'm not sure, but I think he got like 750 grand, which was like a big number for Richard in the late 70s. Richard recorded it. And 90 minutes, no one, and then boom. That's when you started to see comedians become rock stars because it wasn't just five minutes on Merv but and Dying Ashore but- and Mike Dun- It was like there's this 90, and, and man, let me tell you, It took it to another level.
0: But what was weird about it, like you see today and you see people like, uh, you know, George Lopez has done it, Dane Cook has done it, Jack Black has done it, Russell Peters has done it, working NBA and hockey arenas. Mm -hmm. But back then, for some reason, Richard was a rock star. But they never did like the 15 000 to 20,000 seat arena
1: tours they like could've. Dice did in the uh, in the in the 90s and into 2000s. They could have. They just chose to keep it more intimate. I mean, you know, Steve Martin and those guys and Bill Steve Cosby, Martin did do it. Yeah, they did. Them. They could do they were doing Madison Square Garden. It was just about being intimate because a lot of comedians, we grow up in an intimate setting. Like you said, 200 seaters. Uh, so when I started there in the 70s and in, in, in the comedy store, I, there was a guy named Wayne Klein. He saw me perform one of my first nights on stage. And he said, who wrote that material? And I said, I did. He goes, that was funny. He goes, I said, thank you. He said, can I get your phone number? I said, sure. And I'm thinking he wants to get together and we could write material together. And he says, I have a friend who I think might be interested in, in your mind and how you think. And I said, "Okay." Next thing I know, I get a call. Hey, it's Byron there. Yeah, this is Jimmy, J.J. Walker. (laughs) And he's hotter than the sun because he's J.J. on Dynamite. And the sitcom's like number one sitcom in America. On Good Times. On Good Times. So he goes, I go, wow, Jimmy Walker. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, my man, Wayne Klein, says you are funny. Why don't you uh, come and hang out with us and uh, sit in on one of our writers' meetings. And I go, okay, let me ask my mom. <laughs> and because you're fourteen, thing, or I'm a fourteen at this point. So I, 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 put, I said, and next thing I know, I hear Walker go. You know, he takes the phone and he says, he has to ask his mom. And all these guys start laughing and in, in, in the living room. And I don't know who's laughing. And then I hear this one guy say, tell his mom not to worry. We will have cookies and milk for him. <laughs> And I remember thinking, who is this wise ass talking about me having cookies and milk and my mom, right? So my mom says it's cool. I go to Jimmy's apartment and I walk in and there's Jay Leno who is sleeping in his car. (laughs) David Letterman, who was the one who said, "Tell his mom not to worry, we'll have cookies and milk," <laughs> and he was sleeping in a closet <laughs> across the street from the comedy store. Marty Natler, who went on to write and produce uh, "Happy Days" and "Laverne and Shirley," uh, Jeff Dugan and and, and Wayne, uh, Wayne 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 Cl- Wayne Klein head, uh, was a head writer, one of the head writers for Jay Leno. All these guys uh, ended up. You know, we just, they were getting 200 bucks a week. I got $25 a joke. At that point, I was a paper boy. Um, I was throwing the Herald Examiner, which is out of business, and I would have to throw two papers to make a penny. So I would throw, in the wee hours of the morning, I would throw as many papers as I could to make a, you know, try and make a buck. So when I got this check for $25, I didn't know what what that was. I sold him a joke and I got a check for $25. So I went to my mother and I said, what is this? She said, it's a check. I said, well, what happens here? She goes, well, you take it to the bank. They're going to give you $25. I said, wow. I quit my paper route. <laughs> so so, so, so I, uh, I I, go and then I said, where's the check? You know, like, like, because I wanted that check, right? Yeah. So she said, you have to go to Jimmy because they're going to give the check back to Jimmy Walker. And I said, okay, all right. So I go to Jimmy after one of the writers meetings. I said, you know, can I get that check? Because he goes, really? I go, yeah. This is the first joke I ever sold, 25 bucks. And I framed it. And it still hangs in my office today. And I I had Jimmy on my show on Comics Unleashed. And I told the story and I pulled out the check and I said, I want to thank you in front of the world. This meant the world to me. So we would go to Jimmy's apartment every Tuesday and Thursday night at 730. Jimmy Walker's sitting there. We're in his living room. And it's David Letterman. And it's and and it's it's Jay Leno. And at one point, Jimmy managed all of us. He was our manager. He managed Jay Leno. He managed David Letterman. He managed me. As a matter of fact, he had convinced David Letterman at one point, ah, you don't want to be a comedian, be a writer. And for a minute, David Letterman pursued pretty much just writing. So I'm doing the stand up, I'm doing the stand up and I'm 17 and there's this guy and I'm sitting at the back of the improv. His name is Jim McCauley, and Jim McCauley was the guy who recruited all the comedians for The Tonight Show. and One of the most powerful men in, in the business. And one of, of the most time. powerful men in the business at that point. And I was like, nice to meet you, McCauley. Mr. McCauley, I'm glad you took the time. And he sat there, and he watched me. And I thought, oh, this is great. He's watching me.
0: He came to see you specifically? Or no, he just people? he was
1: hanging out in the clubs. Right. Because he would just hang. He was he really did. His, he really was dedicated and did what he was supposed to do. And Jim McCauley was sitting there. And I thought, this is great. I'm 16, 17 years old. He had heard about me from Bud Friedman, who owned the improv. And Bud Friedman is, you know, like a second father to me. I love Bud.
0: Another guest on Industry Standard. A great I podcast. love him.
1: And so he's why I thought this is great. Maybe I'll be on The Tonight Show in five to 10 years because Jim McCauley has seen me or he's keeping an eye on me. So shortly after that, I get a call. It's Jim McCauley. Hi, Mr. McCauley. Goes. I'd like for you to do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He oh. saw you one time. Saw so, I me mean, probably half a dozen times. God. Right over the because he was kept coming in, and so I said, "Oh, I said, well, um, wow." And I knew I was like seventeen years old, and but the big thing was I promised my mom I was going to graduate from high school, and that I was going to go to college. And so I, I said, you know, I, that was the reason I turned it down, is because I was not out of high school. And I didn't want to do The Tonight Show, get offers, and then be tempted not to take them and not finish high school and get accepted into college. So... That's why I turned it down because I, I told my mom. So take me through
0: that phone call with Jim McCauley, where he calls you and says, "I want you to do it," and your phone call back to him after you say you'll think about it. I think I told him right there on the phone. How did and you How did you approach it?
1: I just because I wasn't one of those call back kind of guys. I just said, you know, I was pretty clear in my decision, and I just said, uh, no. I said, listen, maybe some other time. I need to get out of high school. And uh, <laughs> and and, uh, and then, do you remember what he said? He was stunned. He was just stunned. He was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm offering you the Tonight Show with Johnny. And at this point, if you did the Tonight Show with Johnny, you were like done. You were set for the rest of your life. It just was that way. That's how powerful the show was. And he was. And this was 1978, 79. And my mom said, like, "Who was that on the phone?" I said, "That was Mr. Macaulay." And she said, "What do he want?" I said, "He asked me to do the Tonight Show." And I told him, "No." Uh, I told her, I'm, "This is uh, I'm, this is for me. This is a marathon, not a sprint." And I don't want to just do the show, uh, get offers, can't accept the offers. I want to. I, I, I have my plan. I want to. I want to do the show. I want to, you know, have a good time. I want to get out of high school and I want to get into USC Film School. So. One week before I graduated from... Time
0: Fairf- out. What does your mom say when you say that? She was stunned. <laughs> Did she say, listen, about that thing going to college? You know, I didn't really mean that, Byron.
1: I didn't really mean call that.
0: Call him back now.
1: Tell him, him you were th-
0: on drugs.
1: <laughs> Tell, call him back now. We want the money. We want the millions of dollars from that exposure to transfer now. So I ended up doing the show May 17th, 1979. It's always something like a second birthday. Um. About a week before I graduated from high school and I knew I had gotten accepted into USC But here's the crazy thing my mother and I go over to Robinson's May to buy me a suit to be on the tonight show with Johnny and literally, I remember being at the cash register and praying that her credit card would go through for like a hundred bucks so I can wear a jacket on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I think the salesman threw in a tie and it was Rob, it's Rob, it was the old Robinson's May in Beverly Hills. And thank God the credit card went through else I would have been on the show in a shirt. And uh, and that jacket is framed and it's hanging in my office today. I can't fit in that jacket. Maybe one of my kids uh, can, but uh, you know. But and I and 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 here's the thing that was so special. I'm standing behind the curtain, and and clearly I'm in that studio now hundreds of times because I now grown.
0: now you were in the studio hundreds of times, right? Because I grew up there at that. You've point. been visualizing this moment since you were fourteen. Yep. You've been practicing your stand up back to the comedy store and the improv for now approximately for, four years, probably four, four years, years. Uh-huh. four years. You're standing behind that curtain. That's
1: right. Are you confident? Are you nervous? I was one totally hour. confident and at ease. But here's the thing that I will never, ever forget. I'm standing there and I'm talking to one of the guys backstage who's a buddy. Cause I'm hanging out there. I know all the guys. And all of a sudden he stops talking and he's like, like he's shaking almost. And he's, <laughs> uh, and he points behind me and it's Johnny Carson. Cause it's the commercial break and it's time for me to come on. And Johnny says, don't worry, kid, you're going to kill. Oh, wow. 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 What a moment. Unbelievable, Byron. Unbelievable. At that moment, it didn't matter. I could have made 500 chairs laugh. Isn't that great? That's amazing. So he gives me this great introduction.
0: What's even more amazing about that, Byron, is if you know the history of The Tonight Show... And all of your friends that did it—he's never done that. He's never done that. He's but he never,
1: remembered that kid in the parking lot. That's right. He remembered the kid in the parking lot, and he remembered the and he was and he remember and he was told this kid turned you down. He had to get out of high school, and he put it in the intro. And I went out there, and I was so comfortable. It was like being in my bedroom because I stood there so I stood, I stood there so many times, and it went great. And he was so happy. And he had me come over and he gave me a shake, shake his hand. And he goes, wow, look at that. He goes, that was great. And you went over to the couch. I, went, I didn't sit down. I went over there and and, I, and he he had me come over and he said hello. A,
0: it was a very, this is another thing I want to share with our audience. This is what's very unusual about this. Two things happened that night that had never happened before. Number what? one, he went behind the curtain yep. and said, kid you're gonna you know you're gonna kill you're gonna kill number two he brought him over to the desk and i believe shook his hand that's right but he didn't sit him down but he didn't keep him out there and give him the okay symbol it was the only time i remember in history because about five to ten people got asked to the couch in 30 years to sit down that's big And the other 99.999% of the comedians uh, exited their mark. That's right. Back the same way they came, with him either giving them the thumbs up, the OK symbol, or nothing at all. Right. But you. He did something where he brought you over, congratulated you at the desk. That's right. And then said, you know, something will
1: be right back after he said a few words to you. That's right. And, 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 and I remember standing there after he said that. And I remember standing behind the curtain waiting for the, the music to come out of the commercial break. And I remember thinking the next five minutes will change the lives of my mother and I forever. That's what I remember. And I said, I'm going to go out there, do what I need to do, so we will have a comfortable life. Boom. Hit the mark, took them out. And from that came many, many, many offers. And then it was about which offer to choose.
0: Now tell me all the offers that came at that time. I, I, I know which one you chose, but tell me what happened.
1: I remember Joan Rivers called and wanted to do a sitcom with me and I was really flattered. Love Joan. Always loved Joan for that. Joan was one of the offers. Um, there were just a number of them and then the one that stuck out for me was a, a show, a reality show. This is 1979. And you the, would call it a reality show because we were out and if it wasn't scripted and we were out in the field and we were doing stories about reality, about real people. It was like the first hybrid kind of show. It's yeah, real people. And a lot of those producers who were producers and editors splintered off and created what became the next generation of reality shows. And then the next generation of reality shows, it was that was the granddaddy of those shows in that genre and I remember thinking at this point there were only three networks there were three networks ABC, NBC and CBS there was 22 hours of primetime television for both all three of them, 66 hours of primetime TV and I thought this show will work because it is different from the other 65 hours of television and I said I want real people and so um, what have the, they said? This guy, George Slaughter wants to meet you. Go, will you sit down with him? George Slater, one of the greatest uh, comedy producers of our time. That's right. And laughing and, 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 and real people. And my agents said, go sit down with him. And I go you sit You had an down. agent. I had an agent because I got an agent from. You from got the, an agent from the Tonight Show. Yeah. William Morris. And, uh, so I go over there. And uh, William Morris says, go sit down with George Slaughter, please. I go sit down with George. Hey, I understand my agent, my agent said you wanted to meet me. I'm 18 years old. Yeah, how you doing? Good. Good to meet you. All right. Everything good? All right. See you later. Got to go. So I get home. They say, George Slaughter wants you to do a co-host Real People. I'm like, what? All I did is say hello. <laughs> <laughs> so I go and I meet George. And uh, I ended up going out to do my first Real People story in Columbus, Ohio, uh, we went to uh, do a story on the biggest, meanest roller coaster in the world, The Beast. And, uh, and I met George. But I love this part. The writer on Real People, the writer on Real People was a guy I met when I was 13 years old. And I gave him my first script, Dave Panish. Relationships, everybody. But he, he And he just said to George, George. Did you see him on The Tonight Show? He goes, I've known this kid, and I've seen him at the studio since he was 13 years old. And he was a writer on Real People, David Panish. And this was, a, this was for me, was, was key, because here's the thing. When my mother and I came out here to L.A., obviously she's struggling. You know, she's 17. At this point, she's got a 7-year-old kid, so she's 24 years old with a 7-year-old kid. And there are times we're sleeping on people's floors and we're sleeping on people's sofas. And money was very, very, very tight. And I didn't want to be a burden to my mother. I didn't want to, you know, I, I always felt like, you know, I, did, I was always had a fear that she wouldn't be able to afford me. So I had to figure out, I started hustling when I was seven years old. So people say where's that hustle come from? That hustle comes from trying to keep my family together. Because you know, when you really are going from, you know, you're 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 going from pennies to pennies. I mean, you're literally sleeping on people's sofas with with a kid, right? So I remember being maybe 10 years old going to Ralph's supermarket. And asking for a job, and I said, "I wanna, I wanna be able to work here." And they said, "What can you do?" I said, "I can put groceries in the bag, and you know, I'll work here." And they said, "You're too young; you're only ten years old." But I knew I had to find a way to take some of the financial burden off my mother. So as I was walking out the store, I saw that you could put grocery baskets in a uh, in a machine. And it would give you a stamp. And if you got a hundred, if you put a grocery, hundred grocery baskets in that machine, you got a hundred stamps. So you got a dollar's worth of food. So I would stay in that parking lot all day and wait. And in between waiting for baskets, write jokes. And I would take those baskets and I put it in the machine and I would bring home my mother, $10 worth of food. Incredible. So I kept doing that. It's pretty wild. So when I did the Tonight Show, it was like, okay, I can put food on the table. Yes, you did. Fun times. So that was it. And so people say, where's that hustle come from? Where's that drive, you know, that that comes from, you know, not having it and being there where it's like wow you're up against the wall you gotta you gotta make it you gotta make this work and that was it so i started hustling at a young age and i never stopped and that you know that's the thing i always say you know you know you you can't stop and once you get wired like that you get hard wired. people say you know, you're, you're a hardworking guy, but it's like, I don't think I am because I look at my grandfather and I look at my father's, I look at my father and I look at my grandfathers and I see how hard they worked and how little they made. And I always say, you know, I really haven't worked a day in my life since I quit my paper route and I was getting a penny for two papers. <laughs> the rest has been pure fun. and i've been really blessed you know to have guys like you know jimmy walker come through and and you know dave panich and and tom dreason tom dreason was wonderful you know just tom dreason probably did the tonight show over 75 times yeah tom dreason he was the one who when i was a kid i was fortunate enough to meet And uh, I went to one of his comedy workshops and he talked about being homeless and living in his car. And he seems to be the running theme. that's, That's what happens with comics. Not the greatest gig ever. Right. And he said to me, I want you to read three books. I said, okay. And the three books were the magic of believing. The power of your subconscious mind. And think and grow rich. And those were the three. And I was fortunate enough to read those three books at 14. And that really helped me. And it really helped keep my mind on the right track. You were talking about the visualization, the goal setting, the plans, the details, all of that. The, I was fortunate enough to have that introduced to me at a young age. And it was Tom Treesen who did it. And that really, you know, I remember one of the things I read... Habits make the man. So I don't smoke. I don't drink. And I never have done drugs in my life. And people say, how's that? You don't smoke, you don't drink, you've never done drugs. I said, I never wanted to start anything other people were trying to quit. <laughs> and I said, I know my personality. I'm the kind of guy who has to make sure I have good habits. Because once it becomes a habit, it's a habit. And that's okay. I have that habitual personality. I just have to make sure my habits are really good. Working, writing, pursuing, selling, building, creating. And if you wire yourself that way, discipline, then all of a sudden you wake up and it's something that you're hopefully very proud of.
0: And so you woke up one day in your apartment with your mom, and you decided, hey, I want to create a show, I want to create a company, and and I'm going to do this. And you decided to launch Entertainment Studios in your kitchen, and your first show you thought you could make and be successful with was The Entertainers. You know here here's the thing so tell me how that came about and how you thought that you could make it work because there's a great story here you talk about persistence yeah I'm not gonna give away the details of it but I want you to get on the track here because this is incredible so you create an idea for a show the entertainers where you could be that guy interviewing people like when you're 14 years old sitting in that Johnny's chair without him knowing yep and You thought, how am I going to do this a certain way? And you wanted to do it a syndicated way where you went to each market and did it. But it was so challenging because here you are a teenager and and to get to the syndicated market. Back then, there's no email. Right. There's no there's no, you know, digital links. Oh, boy. You have to make VHS tapes. Oh, my God. You have to mail them out with postage. (laughs) Then you have to follow up with phone calls. And I want you to take us through. That process of how you started the company in your in your kitchen or wherever it was, and how you figured out how to break through, film it with your own—I uh, don't know how you did it on your own, how you made it happen, yeah—and and just how you got it going right at first, and what the whole process is, because these people who are listening, you can't even imagine because you think you're selling a show. And you think you've made it by selling a show. But when you sell a show in syndication with barter, as Byron's going to tell you, and when you sell a show in syndication, when another group of people that you're selling to keep certain commercial time and you have other commercial time, you realize that. You have many responsibilities to keep a show going in syndication, especially when it's your first show. Right. So take us through that one story and that process of getting your company going, because this is incredibly inspiring.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I remember being, a, you know, I was, I was a kid and I was in, uh, probably in uh, junior high at this point and I had a teacher and I was, it was my music teacher and I was playing the guitar and I asked her, what does her husband do? And she said, her husband, worked in radio syndication and worked on Casey Kasem's top 40 and that they would give the radio show to the TV stations for free and they would keep half the advertising time and they would sell it. And that was the first time I was probably 15 years old and I heard about radio syndication. And I thought that's fascinating. So fast forward, I do the tonight show. I get real people and you know um, so now the first year of real people I'm getting 2500 bucks an episode.
0: Which, by the way, I want to point out a fact and don't lose your train of thought to show you how greatness rises. One of his co-hosts on Real People... At the time that he got the gig, was one of five people who'd ever gone to the couch after doing stand-up
1: on The Tonight Show. Skip Stevenson, the late Skip Stevenson, love him, love him. So I was year one. I was getting twenty-five hundred an episode, and Skip and Sarah were getting probably seventy-five and ten. That was, that was fine. Okay, year two, I'm getting four thousand an episode, and at this point, they moved up to like ten thousand, twelve five an episode. All right. All right. So now we're in year three. And my, that my contract was pretty much up. And they said 6000 an episode. And I said, can we get what Skip was getting? Can I get in year three what Skip was getting in year one? Can I get 7500 And they said, no. When I was your age, I was digging ditches. And you're lucky to have the offer for six. And because you didn't accept it, you're fired. George slaughter. I love him, but that was the conversation. Yes. So George fired me. And what went through your mind when he said you're fired? I thought, um, it was devastating. It was painful. And it was the best thing to ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever happen to me. It was, it was. Did you send him a fruit basket? It was, to this day when I see him, I still want to kiss him on his lips. <laughs> I, I, it was the best thing. Like, I was devastated. And I was also angry because I said, at that moment, no one will ever determine my value ever again, and no one will ever be able to say that to my mother again.
0: You said that to him, or
1: you said that to yourself? I said to myself, and I have never worked for anybody since that moment, 1981. And I went in January of 1981, to NATPe, the National Association of Television Programming Executives, NAT
0: And explain to our audience real briefly what that convention is and what happens
1: there. And at this convention in January of 81, this is all the people who own and operate television stations.
0: Owner and operated stations. They own. They call it the O and O's. Those are
1: the O and O's, but these are people who own television stations all over the country and operate TV stations all over the country.
0: And for those of you who want to know, there's 212, I believe,
1: markets in the United States, television markets. And about 1,300 or so commercial stations. And all the people who create and produce television shows meet with these television stations. And this convention was January of 1981. I was 19 years old and I go with my mother and I'm devastated and I'm fired and I'm broke (laughs) because 22 episodes times 2500 bucks doesn't go a long way <laughs> after taxes before
0: you start what was your mother's advice to you when you came home
1: and said they fired
0: me did she say well, go she back well she got the there? call
1: she got the call and she relayed the information to me
0: now did she say go back in there and then then get your job back or no not? we
1: we we were both surprised and so i went to i okay. went to natvie and i met with i, I learned I, I it was in, it was at the new york hilton and I'm going, and I'm watching all these people going in out of these suites. And I'm like, what's going on here? And it's people buying and selling TV shows. And I said, well, who's the best? And they said, this guy, Al Massini." So I go, and I introduce myself to Al Massini, And this man literally became like another father to me. I became the son he never had. And he really is someone who... Changed my life. I'm standing there, and I'm watching him. And he's pitching this show, and he's selling it. And I said, "Mr. Messini, my name is Byron Allen. I understand you're terrific at you know selling television shows, and I really want to learn from you. Where are we having dinner tonight?" <laughs> he says, "I'm. I'm. He goes, I have, I'm having. I'm taking some clients to dinner tonight. I'm selling them a show. I said, please save me a seat. So I said, where are we going?" So he tells me the restaurant, I show up at the restaurant and literally there's a seat open next to him and he's sitting there at this table with probably 10 people and it's all these guys that own television stations, multi-multi-millionaires because they own the biggest asset, one of the biggest assets in their town. And at that time, what assets did he have that were the biggest? You'll love this, right? So he's sitting there and he's telling these guys, I'm going to buy you all a satellite dish. And I'm gonna buy you a satellite dish and I'm gonna tape the show at twelve thirty in the afternoon, and I'm gonna put it on the satellite at two and you're gonna run it at seven. Okay, we'll buy it, Al. We'll buy it. All right, the satellite dish will be on your will be delivered to you. Just aim it at this at this transponder. I watched the man sell entertainment tonight. January of nineteen eighty one. And it premiered September of 1981. I watched him sell. Did that. he have the host or just the no, concept? He, he was selling. He And he had the biggest movie star in the world on his pilot. On the, And he was and He interviewed Burt Reynolds on the set of Smokey and the Bandit. And all these guys who own television stations were like, wow, he's got Burt Reynolds on his show. We're going to buy that show. We're going to put it on at 7 o'clock, Al. He spent thirty million dollars to launch this show. And this is a show that probably does about a hundred and fifty million a year in revenue.
0: Where did he have the thirty million
1: launch? Um he was working for the Cox sisters, who you know, worth about ten billion each. Um you so, think they could change their name? After that exactly. Month. The Cox sister, you know, it was started by their father, Cox, Cox, Cox Communications. No, and so you know, he and so he went on to create and launch Entertainment Tonight Star Search, Lifestyles Rich and Famous and Solid Gold. So he taught me the business of creating, producing and distributing television shows, convincing television stations to take the shows and selling the advertising tag. And I was, you know, he told me, look, you know, I didn't start my tape. I didn't start my company. I started my company from my dining room table and I started in my thirties and that's exactly what I did. Uh, So I learned from him and I got to know all the people who owned and operated television stations. I got to know all the people who bought advertising time. And I just studied the business and studied the business. And I traveled the country and I met with all, a lot of the people who owned and operated TV stations. And I got to know all a lot of these people. And I've gone every year, every year, without exception, since 1981. And I've never skipped a year. I am the Cal Ripken of of NATB, the television convention, but I've gotten to know- I saw you there last year. You saw me there last year. I got to know everybody who owned and operated a station. And then more importantly, they got to know me. So uh, fast forward, I was standing, I would, and also when they would have the affiliates meetings, when the networks would have their, their their affiliates come out and meet with them, I would always go to the hotel and hang out in the lobby. And one year at the Century Plaza, it was the ABC owned and operated stations. I'm sorry, the ABC network had their affiliates meeting. ABC eight, one year, and this is in the 80s. And the pilot, and they would show them the pilot. This is in May, and they would show them the shows that were going to be on in fall, in the fall. And the show they showed them that fall, that May, was Roseanne. And I knew Roseanne was going to knock it out of the park because I knew Roseanne from the comedy store and they had given her the time period after Who's the Boss, the number one show. So I knew she was going to knock it. So I'm standing there in the lobby and these guys, they say, Byron, what are you looking for? You're you're always hanging out here. What what are you looking? This is 1988. I said, I'm trying to raise some money to do the Byron Allen show. They say, well, talk to this guy. He's one of the richest men in the world. So I go and talk to the guy. I say, this guy says that you of the richest guys in the world. Cause you own a bunch of TV stations. He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, what do you need? I said, I need, you know, some money to do the Byron Allen show. He says, when the next time you're going to be in Washington, DC, I said, uh, when you going to be there? <laughs> he says, I'm going back tomorrow. I said, I'm going to be back in D.C. day after tomorrow. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so I go to D.C., right? And I go and I go into uh, this office. Building. You really weren't going to be there. No, course. no, 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 no. But you, but you, you gotta, did what
0: everybody does. Yeah, yeah
1: if you got. You say you're interested in financing me. I'm showing up.
0: So, <laughs> you know, I, which is interesting because Byron Allen never lies. But that one time he told a white
1: lie. No, 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 no. I, I He said, "When are you gonna be there?" I said, "I'm gonna be there day after tomorrow." I, <laughs> I have, didn't say. I it. He didn't lie. say. He didn't ask me when do you have plans to be there. <laughs> you're right. He said, you "Stay when? true to it." Your... I stay true to it. I'm not gonna lie. Are you kidding me? So I said. I said, look, I said, you know, what, you know, I go, and I'd never seen this before. I'd never gone into an office building. And then all of a sudden there's a, he says, oh, he's having lunch. And they take me into the executive dining room. I'm like, I'm in an office building, I'm in an executive dining room. And then they say to me, they say, and I got a butler and the butler is like, you know, serving me. And then and the guy says to me, um, you know, okay, well, you, you want to do the show? Okay. He says, all right. He says, this is good to know. He says, I'm going to have my people do some due diligence on you. No, well, I'm so I don't know what the hell due diligence is. So, <laughs> so next thing you know, I get a call and they say, We've, we have done our due diligence on you and we have vetted you and uh, uh, a gentleman will be showing up next week with a check. So I go, what? He goes, yes, he'll be showing up next week with a check. This is probably September, October of t- 1988. And less than three weeks, I put together a pilot for the Byron Allen show, and I get Roseanne to be on it.
0: Right Now, he financed it. The pilot. Now, here's an interesting thing that you you did, which you wouldn't normally do, Byron. So, and I'm 27
1: years old at this point. You're
0: 27 point. years old, but you knew from real people that when you take a check, you lose control. No, I had creative
1: control, and we were 50-50 partners. You had the veto vote. I had to create a, you had to create a vote. Very rare when you get yeah. financed. Right. And these guys were on TV stations, and they were paying millions and millions of dollars for Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and Oprah and didn't own anything. So my hundred and sixty grand to make like a pilot for the Byron Allen show was nothing. Right? And this is—and by the way, owning TV stations was one of their side businesses. <laughs> okay. Now, the concept of the Byron
0: Allen show was kind of interesting because it was Tonight like show. a— it was like a hybrid kind of version of like
1: a interview
0: show where you actually. It sat was the Tonight Show on the
1: weekends. It was Johnny on the weekends.
0: It like, was, but if I'm not mistaken, you also sometimes when when out didn't
1: you go outside? And did sketches, but yeah. Then, and, by the, and so we do we, we, we I get them to make the pilot, and I got Roseanne now having Roseanne on. Was key. Now, right? So I taped the show. Sure enough, Roseanne goes to number one. So when we started showing it to the TV stations, they're like, oh, my God, you've got the number one television star on your pilot. So that show gets cleared in 95% of the country. Somebody (laughs) picks it up in every market. And I knew she was going to go to number one because I was in I was at the hotel and everybody said, Oh my God, the show's great and she's following who's the boss. And I said, I'm putting Roseanne on my pilot and that show's gonna sell. So putting her on that sold the Byron you Allen. When Byron says clear to ninety five
0: percent of the market, think of the two hundred and twelve markets that there yep. are yep. and clearing to ninety five percent of that. Now, however, Byron, yep. So talk about how you get your show going. You get that deal that you heard about in the radio business where you give them 50% of the advertising, I believe they get the national advertising. No, they get the local advertising. That's right. So here's what happens. And right. this
1: is the fascinating part. Right. So I'm going to take you there. So here's what happens. Another distributor distributes the show, right? And that distributor is is distributing the show. And then so year 1 of the show we lost a million bucks. Year two of the Byron Allen show, it's a once a week show. Year two, we break even. And now year three, looks like we're going to make a million bucks and get back what we lost in year one. But my distributor wanted my show to go away because he was only getting 20% of the gross. And he knew that if my show went away, he could replace my show with a show that he owned 100% of, and he had found a show that he could produce for a million bucks that he would own 100% of, and that sh- time the time period would take in probably about $5 million. So he could produce the show for, this is back in 89, 90, he could produce the show for a million. Put it on stock time periods that would generate five million, and put four million in his pocket. So I lost my show because I didn't have the distribution. So I don't have that many rules in business, and some my rules are real simple. People say I want to go to the Byron Allen Business School. I say real simple. Rule number one: Don't let anybody come in between you and the customer. Rule number two: Don't run out of money. And rule number three, do not break rules one and two. (laughs) That is the Byron Allen business school, right? So I learned I have to do my own distribution. That's how I got into the distribution game. Now, one quick little side story. I do the Byron Allen show. They say, where do you want to tape it? I say, I want to tape it in Johnny Carson's studio. Johnny gives me permission to strike his set on a Friday night, put my set in on a Saturday. I would knock out two shows on a Sunday and they would put his set back in on a Monday and he would tape his show Tuesday through Friday. They say to me, "Okay, now that you're paying all this money to tape the Byron Allen show on Johnny's stage, where do you want to park? Johnny's parking space, number one. Do you want parking space, number two? Or where do you want to park? I said, I don't want to park next to Johnny Carson. He's got a white Corvette. I had a little black BMW. I said, if I open the door, I will nick his white Corvette. I said, give David Horowitz, who was the local newscaster, did action fight back with David Horowitz. I said, he had a gold Mercedes. I said, put him next to Johnny. So he had parking space number two. And I had parking space number three. And I was like, hey, if I if I mess up David Horowitz's door, I we can survive that. But I cannot mess up Johnny's door. So we would tape there on the weekends. So anyway, I got, you know, um, I, things didn't go well with my television distributor. So I had to learn and take over my own distribution. So here's what I did. I went and interviewed back in 1993 six funny friends with a video camera. Sinbad, Paul Rodriguez, Dennis Miller, Thea Vidal, Michael Richards, and Robert Townsend. And I went and interviewed them on the streets or on the set or wherever they were, and I made this one hour show. And I sat at my dining room table for a year, and I called every television station in the country, from sunup to sundown, literally wore holes in my chairs. It's like
0: painting the Golden Gate Bridge. You start at one end and you finish and you have to go back to the beginning. And
1: you got to go back to the beginning. So I would literally start at about 530 in the morning because it's East Coast. I could start reaching people at 830 in the morning. And this is before Internet. This is 1990. From your kitchen table. From my dining room table. And I'm sitting there and I literally wore holes in the chairs sitting there from sunup to sundown. And I called all the stations and I asked them to carry this once a week show where I interview people And it's, I said, I'll give you the show for free. It's an hour. There's 14 minutes of commercial time. I'll keep seven minutes. You keep seven minutes. You sell your seven minutes to local advertisers, local banks, car dealers, and supermarkets. I'll sell my seven minutes to national advertisers, Uh, you know, Coca Cola, McDonald's, Johnson Johnson, Walmart, on and on and on. Took me a year to do that. Literally 40. Each station said no probably 40 times. 40. Imagine
0: that, everybody. They said no to a
1: free show, which uh, your first guest ever was. I mean, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I don't even remember my first guest. I mean, but giving away a show for free literally sat there, Every day from sunup to sundown. So finally, I get a yes in every market. And my first big yes is a guy named Joe Ahern. Joe Ahern was the general manager of WLS in Chicago. Guess who's in Chicago, everybody? Oprah Winfrey. So he's got this, he's got the ABC affiliate in Chicago, and Oprah Winfrey's on at nine in the morning, and Joe's doing like a 60 share, (laughs) 60% of the audiences in Chicago. Goes watching WLS because he's kicking off the day with Oprah and never looks back. And then from the success of being on WLS in Chicago, they roll her show out nationally and it ends up being a $400 million a year franchise, bringing in $400 million a year. And Joe was such a powerful GM, general manager at this point. Joe I call up Joe. He picks up the phone. Hey, Byron, how's it going? I I say, I got the show. Send me a tape. Send him the tape. You know, boom. Next thing, call me back on Tuesday. Call me back on Tuesday. You got Saturday at 1030. Boom. 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 This is what
0: happens, everybody. In any business you're in, if you can find one person who is respected and I, t- I talk about this a lot the dale carnegie book for 75 years how to win friends and influence people align yourself with great people and if people see that you're with great people boom boom and so what happened you called every other station that said no and what did they say all the
1: stations who had ne- said no 40 times i now go back and say hey you know, Joe Ahern, WLS just picked us up. What? Joe picked you up. <laughs> All right, send me that tape again. <laughs> so I send the tape back around. And, you know, so I, you know, my mother would, I would call the stations. And I would then, at the end of the day, I would go put the tapes in a in a pouch. And i go to the post office, mail it to them. When I got a deal, my mother would uh, do the paperwork. It was a one-page contract. And to this day, it's still a one-page contract. And she would uh, fax them the contract and uh and then that's how and so i called him up and finally after a year i got 90-plus percent of the country cleared. I got 150 stations, 85%, 90% of the country cleared. And, and you'd think that would be reason to celebrate for Byron Allen
0: until he sits back in his dining room chair that he wore out and realizes. I'm in trouble.
1: Holy <laughs> so, <laughs> shit. I'm I gave away tr- everything for free, and I still haven't gotten an advertising dollar. Right. So now it's time to sell my advertising time. <laughs> so I call up guys who sell advertising time, and I say, I need you to sell my advertising time. And they said, you missed the upfront. I didn't even know what the upfront was. And the upfront is when you go and you, it usually happens in May, June. You present your, your ad, your shows to the advertisers and they literally spend... $10 $10 billion in about two months. <laughs> well, they're like, you missed the $10 billion party. <laughs> I'm going, well, there must be some crumbs left. We're talking 10 billion. So, and I, cause I'm sitting there and, and like, so I didn't have anybody to sell my advertising time. So I had to learn how to sell my advertising time. So over about a four-year period, my home went in and out of foreclosure 14 times. There were days I didn't eat didn't have any food there were days they turned my phone off I was calling people from a pay phone I couldn't even do this today and uh so finally I, I realized it's not about me it's about them and the multiplexes started coming in in the 90s you know going from one theater to 15 theaters and I and in these in these studios were having a tough time because people were going to these multiplexes and it's like well which movie do I see and then they got really aggressive and competitive about getting their trailers out there. So I went to all the heads of the movie studios and I said, Look, I'm showing, I'm interviewing your movie stars. I'm showing your clips, your trailers. And I've got this show on 150 television stations and we're seen by millions of people. And I'm telling people to go to your movie. And you guys are spending 200 million to 700 million a year each. I need you to spend money with me. So I can be there to support you. And they were like, you're right. And I signed up every movie studio. And they started consistently buying advertising time for me. And then I realized, don't go in there talking about you. Go in there talking about them. It's about them. And I signed up the movie industry. Now, this was an important thing. Because I was selling the show from my dining room table. And I'll never forget, this is interesting story um i called up I, I said i called up this tv station it was the cbs affiliate i believe it was in harrisburg and there was a general manager there and i said uh he said he was going to clear the show saturday night at 11 30 once a week for an hour and i called my mom I'm like mom did you get that paperwork back and she says no no i said and i hear her shuffling the paperwork I'm like, Mom, you're going to have to be more organized because you're like, these deals are hard to come by. You got, you can't lose that kind of paperwork, you know. This is, this is a CBS affiliate in Harrisburg, you know, Saturday night, 1130, opposite Saturday Night Live. And I call the guy up and I go, hey, did you send that paperwork back? He goes, no, I'm not going to do the deal. I go, how come you're not going to do the deal? He goes, well, he goes, some guys were in here from the big studios, from one of the big studios and they said you were calling me from your dining room table in your underwear and that the show wasn't going to be there. And so I gave them your time period. I said, who was it? They said some sales guys from Paramount. I said, what show did you put in there? And they said, Star Trek. And so I said, okay. I said, I got you. I got you. I said, so listen up. I said, it's true. It's true, I'm calling you from my dining room table and I am in my underwear. But the show's gonna be there and it's gonna be there until the end of time. And to this day, that show's still on. We're going into season 22 and never canceled the show. And the reason why is because I never wanted my competitors, Warner Brothers, Disney, Sony, Paramount, to ever walk in and be able to say to the TV stations, Byron Allen's show won't be there. They can't say it because my shows have always been there. It was because of that moment of what happened. And I said, ah, I'm going to shut you down now. And to this day, stations do business with me because we have 30-something television shows. And they say, I can always depend on your shows being there. You don't cancel shows. And it was that moment that made that happen. So fast forward. Every Friday morning at 6.30 in the morning, I have a sales call that runs about two hours with my sales team. And we're about 10 years ago, after 10 years after this event occurred or so, Ten years after this event occurred, one of my salespeople says, "Uh, do you remember, whatever his name was, Bob in Harrisburg, and he had given you Saturday night at 1130 and he he didn't give it to you because the guys at the studio said that you weren't going to be there and your show wasn't going to make it and you weren't going to be on the air? I go, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I go, as a matter of fact, that's the reason why we've never canceled a show, because uh, I needed to let my competitors know we will never back down. And he says, yeah, he apologized for that. (laughs) (laughs) And he just gave us Saturday night at 1130. (laughs) I go, 10 years later, I go, we'll take it. (laughs) And that was it. That was that, that was that you got to condition the market to understand who you are. You are relentless, you are unstoppable, and you will not ever, ever back down. So they know it. And that was that, was that key moment. So I, learned, I had to learn how to sell my time, and I had to get the stations to trust me and never portray that trust. And never portray the relationship with the advertisers. I made it a point to go and sit down with pretty much all the stations in the top 50 markets. Nobody's done that. That moment as a kid, Bob Hope will be on TV forever because he knows the advertisers. So go know the TV stations, go know the average so I go and I sit down with the heads of all the major corporations. See, I'm in business with Walmart because I've gone to Bentonville, Arkansas, and I've hung out with the people who make those buying decisions. I've gone to Cincinnati, Ohio, Procter & Gamble. I've gone to Atlanta, Coca-Cola. I've gone to New Brunswick, New Jersey, Johnson & Johnson. I go to the chairmen's. I go to the CEOs. I go to the chief marketing officers. They know me. I know them. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We're here until the end of time. We will always be here producing shows and content. So I've made it a point to get to know the stations extremely well, and let them get to know me extremely well, and to get to know the advertisers extremely well, and let them uh, know me as I we get we get to know each other extremely well. So I was standing in, um, you know, after I, I after I realized that lesson of you know, here you go to the studios. Then I went on the road. I got out of my pajamas and I went on the road. And I started signing up industries. And so I went and signed up the automotive industry. And then I went and signed up QSR, quick service restaurants, the McDonald's of the world. And then I went and signed up the, the, you know, the soft drink industry and then the pharmaceutical industry and the packaged goods industry. And I went industry by industry by industry. And I woke up one day and I said, I'm in business with every television station and most major advertisers. And I'm standing around and I'm in a room and I'm doing voiceovers, Mike Androsky, who's editing my show. And I, we're in a room, you know, a third, the size of this room is a closet. And I said, what are all these tapes on the shelves? He says, that's your library. I go, wow, really? He goes, yeah, these are all the interviews you've done over the last two or three years. I said, wow. I said, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and they used to, and Diana, they used to do uh, theme shows. I said, let's do a theme show. What should we do? All country artists, all this, all that. I said, tell you what, let's do all the athletes. So I took all the athlete interviews that I had done. And I said, let's make a one-hour special with just the athletes. So in this one-hour special, I was able to assemble. It had already been put in a can. Michael Jordan, Steve Young, Hakeem Olajuwon, Oscar De La Hoya, Penny Hardaway, Dennis Rodman, Riddick Bowe, and Grant Hill. One-hour special. I called up the networks and said, hey, I want to buy an hour on on the network and put this special on. And they said, $250,000. I said, I don't have $250,000. So I hung up the phone, and I called every station in the country, and I got an ABC or an NBC or a CBS affiliate to put this special on adjacent to sports. And I cleared 99% of the country, and it took me three weeks of phone calls to do it. And Michael Jordan was hotter than hot. I interviewed him because he was out here shooting a movie called Space Jam and I hung out with him and I kept hanging out with him and I told him I'm not going to stop hanging out with you until you let me interview you for 15, 20 minutes. And finally he said, come on, let's get this interview done. (laughs) And that created the American athlete. Now, the American athlete, that one hour special cost me less than that special cost me less than ten thousand dollars. If that, I'm not even sure because it was already shot. We just assembled it and we put it on the satellite. I ended up selling the advertising time because it was one hour special and I had seven minutes. I ended up selling the advertising time for a million dollars. And that's how I ended up opening my offices here and we have a full floor. Uh, I never looked back. And I realized sports is a big business. And then I put the American athlete on and then I put another show on and another show and another show and another show and another show. Habits. Those were the habits. Keep, you got to have those habits, keep putting them on. And then next thing you know, 36, 37 shows. And next thing you know, one of the largest privately held television libraries in the world over 4,000 hours. And then I read, you know, Clinton deregulated president Clinton deregulated. He said, the phone company can go into the television business and the uh, cable operators and go in the phone business. So Verizon Files said, hey, we're going to spend $23 billion building out television fiber uh, platform to the home. we Verizon's going to have its television platform, Verizon Files, and we're going to offer the world 150 HD channels. So I went to Verizon and I said, i like to do 10 of them. They said, why 10? And I said, because television is the most wasteful business in the world, and I can bring the efficiency back. They said, what are you thinking? I said, when I sent a crew to Concourse d'Elegance in Pebble Beach to shoot the car show, that same for our car channel, Cars.TV— That same crew can interview the chefs and do something with the chefs for our cooking channel, Recipe.TV. And then they can shoot the resort for our travel channel, MyDestination.TV. And then they can shoot what's going on in the pet community for our 24-hour network, Pets.TV. And then they can shoot the celebrities at the car show for ES.TV. And we can shoot something for all of our networks. They said, okay. They said, we'll give you six, not 10. So... We ended up signing Verizon Fios, which is now in five-plus million homes. And they pay us sub fees, and we use that money to – because when you pay your $150 bill, we get a little piece of that, and we go and produce our content. And we have that efficiency. But what I did from my roots, Barry Gordy, Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, Rockefeller, all guys I read insatiably about, I created the factory. So we have a day crew that works from 9A to 7P and a night crew that works from 7P to 5A. And we shoot everything and we own it 100%. And our producers produce it and they put it on our seven networks. So you're able to watch it on these seven 24-hour HD networks. And then all of a sudden the internet comes along with a ferocious tear of, you know, video over the web. It's like, oh, well, we own our content 100%. So now we're the first to achieve television everywhere. You can actually watch our content on every device everywhere in the world. And we did that through smarttv.com. And that was it. I said, I'm going to go buy smarttv.com. And that way people can watch it for $4.99 a month and reduce their cable bill from $150 a month down to $4.99 a month and watch it on every device in the world. And we'll just always keep putting content up there and never stop putting content up. And it all started with just that desire to create, that desire to creatively express myself. And as a comedian, that's already innately in me. And as a guy named Dick Cook, he would have lunch with me ever so often at the Walt Disney studio. He's a, he ran Walt Disney. And, I, and he said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, you remind me of Walt Disney. Same thing, he was an animator. Didn't have a good experience with his distributor And he ended up distributing himself. And I said, I get it. You know, you have that creative energy. You want to express yourself. And you go out and you learn the business side of show. It's business show, not show business. And when you juxtapose those two words, then you approach it differently. Business show, not show business. Learn the business side. And you can do as many television shows as you want learn. That's the problem. Most people haven't learned the business side. They won't go know the television stations and learn what their needs are and how they program and the ratings and get to know the sales staff in those markets and how they sell and what they need to do to sell and get to know what the advertisers needs are and to marry the two. So for me, it was about everybody always says, well, how'd you do it? How'd you get, it's me every day, seven days a week business 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 and knowing the numbers and some really good people in my life i'll tell you another quick story um um roger king phenomenal human being this is the people who own king world which is
0: one of the number one syndicated distribution production companies in the world
1: that's right and and roger king phenomenal job he he he, Roger King built this thing with his family. His father had started it with the Little Rascals. And he and his brothers, you know, Robert and Michael and Diane, his sister Diane, um, they start, you know, they take King World to another level. And they've got Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Oprah, uh, you name it. Show after, you know, Dr. Phil, blah, blah, blah. Just unbelievable. And the, show, the company's doing like $500 million a year in revenue, um, you know, two and a half billion in receivables because they sell the shows six years out, five, four to six years out, no debt and a billion dollars in cash. So this is, and this is starting from their little, you know, apartment and Roger, and I, Roger called me up one day and he says, I want you to come pitch me. And I said, sure. And I go pitch him. And, uh, he's like, wow. He says, wow. He goes, uh, I heard you were a great salesman. He goes, I love great salesman because that's why I want you to pitch me. Cause I just wanted to hear your pitch.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and he goes, my dad was a great salesman. He says, my dad was the greatest. Roger says, and he opens up a drawer and he says, this is uh this was one of my dad's ties because I want you to have his tie. I was like, wow. I was like, that's really, thank you, Roger. Then he says to me, he goes, uh, can I be honest with you? I said, always. He says, listen, I know you're having a tough time out there. I just started my company and uh, from my day at 993 or so. And he goes, I know you're having a tough time out there. I go, he says, uh, he says uh, I know, he goes, because I sold Oprah. And he says, I can't tell you how many fights I got into, physical fights, Because I had guys who owned and operated TV stations say to me, I'll never put that in on my station. And I would get into physical altercations with them. So he says, that's what they said to me. He goes, So I know there are guys who are not doing business with you and not taking your calls because you're black. Says this to me. It's like, wow. He says, So here's the deal. He says, I'm having a party at my home at the beach and I've hired Elton John and, uh, and, uh, and who he had Elton John, I think Paul Anka and the four tops or something. And, uh, he says, and I'm going to have a half an hour fireworks show. This is at my home at the beach. Roger says, and he is the most powerful man in television that nobody knows about. He says, every guy who owns and operates a television station is going to be in my backyard this weekend, and I want you to please be there. I said, all right. So I show up. I change my plans. I take the train, and I go to his home at the beach back east, and I walk in, and every guy who owns a television station is there. And a lot of them were not returning my phone calls. (laughs) so Roger walks me around the party and says hey you know Byron, Byron's a great guy, he's a hard worker I want you to return this call and do business with him unbelievable wow and then I never forget he goes he goes uh, I never forget we're in the room he goes how's Bob treating you I go yeah not well He's like, ah, Bob's an asshole. Hey, Bob, come over here. <laughs> He's like, Bob, come over here. Bob, like, drops his plate. <laughs> he goes running over. He goes, hey, Bob, you want to renew Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy and Oprah? He goes, oh, yeah, of course, Roger. Of course. He goes, do something with Byron first, and then when you get something done, give me a call. Bob says, I will call you Monday morning. (laughs) Boom. So leverage. I learned leverage. Got to have leverage. Business, got to have leverage. So I go to Vegas, and I'm in Vegas. And I run into Roger. And Roger's there, and he was a big gambler. Roger was what they call a whale, a guy who would gamble a million bucks or more.
0: Whales are people at the um, casinos. Casinos bring in. They give you like the presidential suite. They High take rollers. care of every single expense you have. They even sometimes, if you're single, or if you're not single, they will send prostitutes to your room every night. They'll <laughs> do everything
1: they can to keep you happy. To keep you happy. So Roger is such a big gambler. They have him in the at the at the Las Vegas Hilton at the Elvis Presley suite. The entire top floor, for the most part, which is where they would put Elvis. That's how, I mean, this guy would go and gamble and win millions, lose millions. So we're in Vegas, and we're at the Foreman-Michael Moore fight. And for Michael Moore was a buddy of, of, of Roger's, right? Because he knew his trainer. And Roger was always loyal, loyal to Falk. So he bets 300 grand that Michael Moore is going to win. And Michael Moore is winning the fight. And George Foreman does the okie-doke. Did George Foreman does to Michael Moore what Ali did to Foreman. He pretended to be hurt. He dep- pretended not to have any juice left. And he got in his head and said that Michael Moore couldn't knock anybody out. So Michael Moore just didn't want to win the fight. He wanted to knock Foreman out. So Foreman knowing that he was the older one, acted like he was hurt, lays up against the ropes, literally less than 30 seconds left in the fight, Michael Moore is the winner. Boom. Next thing we know, Mike, George Foreman knocks Michael Moore out with maybe 20 seconds left in the fight because he played possum. He played like he was hurt. He played like he didn't have enough juice to take him out. Took Michael Moore out, became the oldest heavyweight champion in the history of America. Roger loses 300 grand. Goes to the crap tables. Loses another 450. He's down 750. Okay. Down three quarters of a million bucks. Now, at that point, most people would say, I have ruined my life. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not Roger. He hits me on my arm and he says, I got to go get this money back. Goes over to the Baccarat table and he starts barking at the pit bosses and he's barking at the pit bosses and next thing you know all these guys in the tuxedos you know we're at the MGM Grand because that's where the fight was. Next thing you know all these guys they start making phone calls and they start removing the signs off of the desk. All, you know the, the maximum bet was 15000 They remove it. I go what was that all about? He goes I don't want a maximum bet of fifteen grand. i will be here all night. You got to position yourself to win. So he sits down and he starts making $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 bets. Gets back his seven fifty, dollars and says, I'm ready to cash out. They cash out. They put $2.5 in cash in front of him. He says, help me get this back to the hill. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Roger. <laughs> I said, you know, first of all, and then he would, I say, okay, so, so I go to the bathroom, right? This guy, These guys come up to me. They go, who is that guy who's sitting next to you in, like, the gray pajamas? Because he was, like, wearing some weird—I you know. go, why? He goes, he walked into the bathroom because there was a long line because the fight was there. The place was packed. He says, there was a long line, and he says, I'm sorry, guys. I got to piss like a racehorse. And he gave all of us $2,000 chips, <laughs> <laughs> went straight to the urinal, took a piss and then went back to the casino and sat next to the, to the to the table, sat next to you. And now we're watching this guy make like quarter of a million dollar bets. I go, ah, just some guy on TV. Right. So I said, look, man, we'll never make it from this lobby to the parking lot with two and a half million in cash. I said. Maybe we can call the Hilton. So he calls the Hilton. They send over a money truck and armed guards. Right? Literally, we took the cash up to the suite. And uh, this guy fell asleep right there on the sofa. And there's like two <laughs> and a half million dollars by the front door in money bags. So <laughs> so and, and he was the one who taught me. He said, always know the numbers because he said, how much money am I getting in L.A. for New York? And I didn't have the right number. He punched me in my arm. He goes, "How much am I getting in, in L.A., New York, Chicago?" He's going, like, "You always have to know the numbers." And he was like, "And from that moment on, I always knew the numbers, and I always think about him punching me in my arm." He's like, "You got to know the numbers." He's like, "I'm getting a," he's like, "I'm getting over a million bucks a week just in those two markets." You know, he would he knew the numbers. He goes, "How do you think Oprah's doing four hundred million a year?" Boom, market by market, advertiser by advertiser. That's why she's a billionaire. Unbelievable talent. That guy sold her show like nobody else could ever sell a show. So I was really fortunate. You know, I was fortunate to watch uh, 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 Richard Pryor develop his stand-up. I watched Richard Pryor. He was the first rock star. I saw people go crazy watching Richard. Just he'd show up and they start screaming they start crying. And the thing that blew my mind, he would walk on stage, get a 10-minute standing ovation from for hitting the stage And it would not do any old, proven, tried material. And he would bomb, 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 night after night after night. And after five, six months of that, another 90 minutes of genius. But you, I was in high school with Tim Hutton. And Tim Hutton and I were in drama. And I was upset with Tim
0: Timothy Hutton was in The Other People with Mary Tyler Moore. He played the young swimmer whose uh, brother was killed in the water. Is that correct? Right. So He Tim, won an Academy
1: Award when he was 18, I think, or he was nominated. You're a savant. So, Tim, <laughs> so Tim we're in High School, we're at Fairfax High, and we're in Guys and dials, And I'm like, I'm his understudy because I wanted Nathan Detroit. And finally, he comes to me, and goes, I think you're going to get Nathan Detroit because he had it. I go, what? He said, I'm dropping out. I go, you're dropping out. He goes, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to get a my GED. I'm going to go make a movie uh, with Robert Redford. I go, Robert Redford. Yeah, it's, a, it's his first time directing a movie. I said, you're going to drop out of high school to work with a first time director? He goes. <laughs> he goes. Yeah. So he drops out and he wins the Academy Award. <laughs> He's the only person I gave bad advice to. But I remember. <laughs> what was the advice that you? Do not mean? drop out of high school to work with a first-time director named Robert <laughs> Redford is what I told him. So we were in high school. This is 1978. So he says to me, "You're only as good as you dare to be bad." And I watched Richard bomb night after night as night. And then I remember going back to being backstage at Fairfax High and Tim Hutton saying to me, you're only as good as you dare to be bad. Take risk. Take risk. Take risk. And I, and I watched Richard. And then next thing you know. 90 minutes of pure, unbelievable genius. And and that's a lot of pressure when you got people giving you a standing ovation because they expect you to be the funniest thing they'd ever seen. And he just bombed because everybody's like, do my do The the monkey did you in the ear?" No, he wouldn't do it. That was it. So you
0: have a show, Comics Unleashed. You've seen in your history, you've seen hundreds, hundreds, thousands of comedians. Yep. Tell us three people that maybe we haven't heard of, maybe we have, or the people who you believe or speak to you when you think, you know, they do something for you that you think our audience should be
1: aware of. You know... (sighs) We've had well, on Comics Unleashed, we've done over 200 episodes. We've had over six, seven hundred comics on. And our database, we have over 2,000 comedians. Uh, you but know. I
0: know you know from seeing Pryor, from seeing Murphy, from seeing Roseanne Letterman, I know you know there's certain people out there that when you watch them you're like this person
1: speaks to me and i think they're going to speak to the world that i mean there's a lot of I mean, here's what i'll say about being a, a you know here's my thing right how are you on television consistently since 1979 it's not about being the funniest that's the mistake a lot of comedians make they think it's about being the funniest The funniest is ebb and flow. That will come and go. Today you're the funniest, and then the next thing you know, the next guy is the funniest. It's the ebb and flow. The most important thing, which most people don't get, and I learned that from Bob Hope and Johnny Carson, to be the most likable. Because television is intimate, and it comes into your home, your bedroom, your living room, and that person you really have to like. There are a lot of people who are very funny, They're just not likable. So their careers hit those walls and they don't know why it's stunted. And I always want to say to them, you got to turn on that likability factor. You know, it's not a coincidence. Some of the corniest likable guys sit there for four and five decades and the really unbelievably brilliant, cutting edge, super sharp guys kind of come and go. That's what I look for when i when I'm finding talent and I to put on our, our networks, to put on my, to put on our sitcoms. Yeah. You want to be funny, but more importantly, are you a good person? Are you likable? Because that's the other thing. The audience will know if you're a good person or not, if you're likable and you have to be, because at the end of the day, there are only so many doors that a comedian can go through and become a star. You either have to go through that movie door, that sitcom door, or that talk show door. And no one's really become a big star unless they came through one of those three doors.
0: Tell me a comedian out there that you see the most of yourself in.
1: What I love is today's comedians are, they have an advantage. They have an advantage that we didn't have they're able to study a great deal more than we're able to study. They're able to go on the Internet. They're able to watch hundreds and hundreds of comedians, styles, points of views, ways of writing and approaching material that when I started, uh, there were just maybe a hundred people, 200 people who did it between LA and New York, a hundred probably is what the real number was between LA and New York. And we didn't really communicate as strongly and as well as, as, as comedians coming along today. So the comedians come along today, have an advantage of just being unbelievable because they're studying and they're everybody. And that's just makes them so much better. Um, and I'm I'm really fascinated by the talent we're getting today. I think it's terrific. So I'm just going to
0: mention some comedians or some people in your life that you've known. And maybe for our audience, there might be some something that you have to say about them that will add some insight into the people that maybe we don't already know or your insight into those
1: people. So I'm just the little word association. Sure. Red Fox. Love Red Fox. He uh, one of the he was one of the reasons I even got into comedy uh, because as a kid I watched him do Sanford and Son and uh, he said to me in the hallway, kid, take care of your mother. You only get one mother. <laughs> Freddie Prince. Beautiful human being. Um, I sold him material. Um, that he, I, I gave him the jokes. He said, "I'm going to perform at the Riviera Hotel." He called me backstage in between both between the first and the second show and said, "The joke killed." I'll be sending you fifty bucks, and I'm doing it on the Tonight Show next week. Uh, uh, Puerto Rican astronaut, uh, uh, you know, missing hubcaps. <laughs> wow, Eddie Murphy. Love, love Eddie Murphy. He's just a, a good human being. Uh, very funny. Um, I got a call from Jim McCauley and he said uh, this kid from uh, Saturday Night Live uh, does Buck Week. Uh, he's coming out to do the Tonight Show and he wants to meet you. And I said, okay, I've been hearing about him from Chris Albrecht since I was 14. So we're 18 years old and I show up at the at the, at the at the comedy store. He's at one end of the hall. I'm at the other end of the hall and he nods at me like we've known each other all our lives. I say, hey, what's up? You guys, I, he says, what's up? I say, you want to get something to eat? He goes, yeah, let's go get something to eat. It's like we had just talked to each other the day before and we're 18 years old. And I take him to get something to eat and I say, what are you out here for? He says, I'm out here to do a fit for a movie. And he goes, uh, he goes, I play a convict, but I don't dress like a convict. He goes, I'm going to wear He goes, have you heard of the? Have you ever heard of Giorgio Armani? Armani? He goes, I'm going to be wearing Armani suits. He goes, I love the movie business. I'm going to keep the suits. (laughs) (laughs) i said they're gonna let you keep the suit he goes yeah i'm gonna keep the suit he goes this is a great business he goes byron you want to get in the movie he goes let me tell you something he goes when i arrived to do the fitting for the suit he goes they gave me an envelope and it had fifteen hundred dollars in it and that was my per diem he goes i'm keeping the per diem (laughs) i go you don't like just like whatever you don't spend you don't give back he goes no you keep it and so and so I go, what's the movie? He goes, 48 hours. I go, all right, all right, I'm going to check that out. So, yeah, I love Andy. He's just, and he's a good guy. He's opened the doors for a lot of people. He's helped out Chris Rock. He helped out Keenan Ivory Waynes, Damon Waynes, uh, Arsenio Hall. He's uh, been very generous and supportive. and He doesn't get the credit that he's due for the doors and the support and love that he shows for other comedians. He's just a great talent and a great guy, and he genuinely wants to see other people uh, uh, succeed, and we're, we're just blessed to have him be a part of our generation. Roseanne, love her. Uh, she's real. She's unfiltered. Uh, she helped, uh, I think, move uh, comedy along, especially as it relates to women, even to that next level. Uh, she's very, very special and misunderstood. David Letterman. David's great. He's a good guy. He's uh, David is a uh, guy's a big heart. Uh, You know, um, he probably won't even like me saying this, but, you know, David, um, you know, it's interesting about David. He uh, he's just one of those guys who he's really solid. He he you know, there was a comedian named George Miller who was very sick and he was a comedian and he would, you know, unfortunately passed away. He put him on The Letterman Show probably. 25 to 50 times. And and in his last days, Letterman took care of him. You know, he told those doctors and he took care of the the bill. I mean, he just took care of him. That's just the kind of guy he was. Um, You know, Johnny Carson kicked uh, Tom Snyder off the air to put David Letterman on after Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson's ratings went up the last half hour of his show because people would sit through the younger people. College kids would sit through the last half hour of Johnny Carson to get to David Letterman. Now, Johnny David Letterman gets the 1130 time period. Who does he put behind him? Tom Snyder. Now, I've never heard him confirm it, but I find it interesting. He put back on the air the guy that got displaced to put him on. That's just the kind of human being. But he would never talk about that. He would never get credit for that. He's just, in his core just a good guy and he drove out from Indianapolis in a red pickup truck because he didn't think he was going to make it and he wanted to be able to he wasn't sure if he was going to make it he wanted to be able to get back in his red pickup truck drive back to Indianapolis and be the weatherman and be the the big guy on campus back in Indianapolis um he's great he's just a good guy
0: Robin Williams
1: love him love him love him love him broke my heart um gentle soul magnificent soul um genuinely wanted to make people laugh please people and you know I have a lot of questions about antidepressants I'm not a doctor but I just have too many friends who were on antidepressants who committed suicide whether it was Rich Jenny um whether it was Ray Combs um you know, just a number of people where it's like, what is going on? Robin Williams, uh, were they on antidepressants? Tony Scott, director Tony Scott. I don't know. That one just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, are you kidding me? And uh, you just, you know, as much as he's given us, you just wish you could have been there to give him something, you know, just come on, dude, you know, unbelievable talent, just spectacular. Flip Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Flip's great. He was great. Uh, I saw Flip in Malibu. He said, kid, I'm going to go and do a motorcycle ride uh, across the country. I'm going to come back, and I want to have lunch with you. And, and uh, he died of pancreatic cancer before that happened. Um, Flip was unbelievably talented on stage, and uh, he had to work through his uh, his complexities Uh, offstage and, uh, but very talented and he opened the doors like you wouldn't believe in the seventies. This guy was getting 75 grand an episode and they were selling his spots for 75,000 to 30. And without the success of Flip Wilson, you don't have the success of a lot of comedians because he showed primetime variety comedy is big business. He opened it up big, along with Sid Caesar and Bob Hope and all these other guys. But he really took it to another level. Jay Leno. Jay's great. Uh, Jay, uh, uh, my favorite part about Jay is his wife, Mavis. She is amazing. I love her as a human being. Uh, Jay's a hard worker. Jay is just a hard worker and the thing about Jay is I don't think Jay ever cared whether or not he ended up accumulating or making 500 million bucks. There's, he's that comedians comedian that was going to do it for free and he didn't need the 500 million that they were going to pay him over the course of his career or or, or plus some he's just one of those guys. He's just, he was always that way. Uh, Even when I was writing with David Letterman and Jay Leno for, and in Jimmy's apartment, we sat on a sofa like this. He was like, you're going back to the seventies where it's just like, it's all about making the joke better. How do we take a word here, move it over there? What other word can we use to make this joke funnier or punchier? You know, that was the science of making, creating funny. Richard Pryor. Gentle soul. Wounded. Hurt. Uh, use comedy to help mend those wounds. Um, And he, um, he, he did us all the greatest, gave us all the greatest gift ever. He's the one I think who brought the most honesty to comedy. And I think that happened because of Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye created, you know, he, he did what's going on. And I think You know, Richard heard what's going on. And up until that point, he was doing Bill Cosby. He was ripping off Bill Cosby. And he was playing this almost black Disney-esque type character. And it's like, that's not me. Then he heard Marvin Gaye. And Marvin Gaye was like the big bang of entertainment. What's going on? Change. Everything in, in creativity, you know, that gave you Stevie Wonder's Sounds in the Key of Life. That gave you Peter Frampton's, you know, concert. Then it gave you R- Richard Pryor couldn't stop playing Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On. And then he came out of that room in San Francisco after listening to that real, authentic, be yourself in the streets Marvin Gaye. Hey, hey brother, far too many of you dying. Mother, mother, you know, far too crying. We got to find a way, blah, blah. Boom. Next thing you know, he said, I'm going to be myself. And then you met the pimps and the pushers and the hookers in his life. And he talked about his child abuse and he talked about being raised in a brothel. He took, he, he it I think listening to Marvin Gaye said, I can be myself and I don't care what other people think, but I got to be myself. And that changed comedy forever. And I think what, what really knocked that door open was What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. It's really interesting. Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson. Um, An amazing, amazing television talent. He invented uh, what is the talk show today. Um, he, He ran it like a business that... No one could ever imagine. When he first started, the show was much, much longer. When he moved it from New York to L.A., he got it from 90 minutes down to uh, 60 minutes, and it was just tight. And the thing about Johnny is that what I learned studying him, and that was the thing, that was the reason why I paid all the money to tape on his stage, I could have those little five-minute conversations with him in the parking lot, and he would give me tips. Pull back. Be yourself. Be yourself. Make sure you go out of your way to make the guests shine. And what Johnny taught me was, look, the first half hour of The Tonight Show. What's your proudest moment professionally? Oh, wow. Um, you know, loved doing The Tonight Show, um, convincing Verizon Files to turn on six networks simultaneously in one day and to be the proud owner of six twenty-four 24-hour HD networks. Uh, launching an over the top global television platform, smarttv.com. Um, creating and selling Comics Unleash. I think it's a great format. The world doesn't have enough laughter. You know, building my business, uh, building it in a way where it's everything I want it to be, where it's my sandbox and I get to create and produce and have fun. Uh, entertain people and just do what I love. And because I'm doing what I love, it generates an unbelievable amount of revenue. And I wasn't pursuing the revenue that way. I was pursuing my passion and the passion delivered, you know, just unbelievable rewards. That's the key.
0: Absolutely. And for those of you in the audience that don't know, Byron's latest venture is in scripted television, where he has actually written with his partner, Scott Satin, and created two sitcoms, uh, First Family and Mr. Box Office, that are both scheduled to do get to, I believe, 42 episodes by the end of the year. Each. So he's ventured into the scripted world. He's created the shows. He's producing them for a fraction of the price of regular sitcoms on network television.
1: Just to touch on that, my mentor, Al Massini said, look, the more you spend, the higher your rating has to be. Figure out how to bring the cost down. Be efficient. So what did I do? I went and rented a 75,000 square foot facility in Culver City, uh, not in a studio uh... the trailers uh, that we were using were costing two thousand dollars a week i had damn near twenty of them forty thousand a week on trailers i called up a mobile home park told them that i need to buy I, i said i'm online looking at these trailers are these the dimensions? And they said, yes. I said, I want 18 of them. And the guy hung up on me and I called him back again. He kept, he thought I was a crank call. He hung up a couple of times. I go, no, I'm not a crank call. I said, I need 18 of them. He goes, let me get this right. I've been here 30 years. You're telling me you're not going to come look at these things and you want 18 of them? I said, yeah. And I said, where are they made? He said, in Indianapolis. I said, get them here ASAP. And uh, they delivered the trailers. And I mean, you have to do things like that where you just save money, you're, you buy the equipment. And you just have to be smart about bringing the cost down. And it was important to me to crack the code to script it because I wanted to make sure, you know, after I, you know, my wife and I, we had our, we have our three kids. I wanted to make sure our kids saw themselves uh, as a family and as African-Americans and for, you know, we have six broadcast networks and not one African-American family on television at this point, fall of 2012. So I said, I'm going to crack the code and uh, I will create it and put us there. And that's why I created the first family in Mr. Box Office. And my kids actually t it and they watch it. And I named the characters after them, Chloe and Olivia and Lucas. And I wanted them to just see themselves as a family on television. And I just figured, look, the networks aren't going to do it. And I don't want them to grow up not seeing themselves. So that's why I put those two shows on. And I felt it was important to crack the code on scripted so we're not depending on the networks to depict us the way they think we should be depicted.
0: That's correct. You got some great shows, like I said, First Family with, of course, Gladys Knight in there and Mr. Box Office with Vivica Fox and John Lovitz and
1: Bill Bellamy, Bill Bellamy and I mean, John Witherspoon. I mean, these are all people I love. Tim Meadows and Essence Atkins. She does an amazing job. And, I mean, Kalita Smith and Chris Duncan, who plays the president, does a terrific job. And Kalita and, 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 and Marla Gibbs. I mean, Marla Gibbs came up. She came to audition. And Jack A, are you kidding me? I'm so lucky to be in business with Jack A. Uh, Marla Gibbs came up there and she... It's I like just, the Hall of Fame. You it's got the Hall of Fame. The but the, the sad part is these people weren't working. And I just said, it's ridiculous, you know, for... Marla Gibbs Jefferson's two two seven. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were coming to this audition. I would not have had it up a flight of stairs, and I created a part for her. The part didn't exist when she walked in. I just said, "You're going to be playing uh, the first lady's mother." What was the cost of the last presidential family sitcom on network television per episode? It's probably two to three million. We try to keep it under ten percent of that, and that's exactly right. But see, once again, that's Al Massini. The more money you spend, the higher the rating has to be. When the when sixteen hundred pin uh, premiered, at one point. They were not primetime NBC network. They were doing a point nine and we were doing a point nine. <laughs> so if we're spending, you know, call it 200,000 an app and they're spending 2 million in up, you, you, you got to pull the plug on the 2 million. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And we got to get there by keeping the cost down. And that's what we specialize in. And you got to keep the cost down. Look, I have my wars with the unions and I have my wars with everybody and it's a war, but I know if I spend, I can't, help the people I I have, I have a couple of hundred people who depend on me. And so I fight every day to keep the cost in line so we can be here until the end of time.
0: All right. Final question. There's a lot of people out there. There's young comedians, there's young producers, there's young creators out there all over the world, trying to figure out how to get to the next level, how to take the journey And how to get to the point where they can experience the kind of success that you have. What advice would you give to those people who are starting out and trying to do the same thing
1: that you are? You're very fortunate. Um, You have something uh, today that a lot of people didn't have. You have global distribution, uh, the internet. And that global distribution is powerful. Now, what you have to do is write and create every day and put it up. And guess what? If it's, if it's good, it's going to draw an audience. And you just keep writing and producing and putting it up. Write every day. You know, um, a lot of people don't write every day. Cosby had taught me that. Cosby told me I write every day. And I laid down 35 minutes of comedy every year. And then I went back and started listening to his comedy albums. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, you know, why is there air Fat Albert to my brother, Russell, whom I slept with Bill Cosby, a very funny man. All those albums, which were un- unbelievably brilliant. They wrote 35 minutes. And he said, I write every day. And the goal is to get 35 minutes laid down. I record it and move on to the next 35 minutes. Right. Stephen Cannell, God bless his soul, he told me the same thing. He writes every day, even when he's on vacation. And I got to know Stephen Cannell because we were to vacation in the same spot for years. And he would rent a room just to go and write for the first half of the day.
0: As a matter of fact, his logo,
1: animated logo card, was a typewriter with a piece of paper coming out of it. And he would sit in a room and write every day. So write, create, shoot. Because at the end of the day, I tell you, the people in this business, they don't know. They really don't know. What you have to do is harvest your talent, let your unbelievably bright light shine to the world and go to you and the internet now gives you that opportunity you don't have to deal with all of these jokers in LA New York and Chicago mainly LA and New York who don't know they don't they're guessing and now what they're doing is they're searching because they're saying oh my god this person's got 30 million hits at YouTube or whatever it is then all of a sudden it's an easy decision Get out there. Do what you do. And, you know, and the good news is you got 7 billion people on this planet. And most of them are hooked up. You only need a small fraction of them to appreciate what you do. And guess what? You're a gigantuan business. You don't need everybody to love you. Now, that's the thing I always say. You know, my television shows, like, oh, people are like, hey, they're on at 2, 3 in the morning. Yes. And guess what? If you manage it correctly, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's crazy. But a lot of people don't understand that. You need a fraction. A one rating. What does a one rating mean? A one rating means 99% of the audience hasn't seen it. Wow. And a one rating is solid. A three rating, the networks would do a backflip over a three rating. That means 3% penetration. That's what a three rating means. That means 97% said, I don't care. Okay, that's a huge, that is a huge advantage for you. You don't need that many people to even really appreciate you. Appreciate your work because it's so big and everybody's so connected. Just be brilliant. Just be yourself. Be yourself. Charles Joffe taught me that. I was in college. I was at USC. Charles Joffrey, I believe, was David Letterman's manager. And Robin Williams and Billy Crystal. And he, and he wrote a letter for me to get into USC film school. And uh, he said, uh, I don't like your act. And I said, why? He goes, it's just a collection of jokes. He goes, you're unique. You're special. When you, If I listen to you for a half an hour... I want to know you. He goes, I know you don't think it's something special, but I didn't have your experience. I didn't know what it was like to be born in the 60s and raised in Detroit. But tell me about you. I'm fascinated by you. Your fingerprint is unique and so are you. So be yourself. Go out there and just be yourself. And that's what Johnny Carson would say to me in the parking lot. Pull back. Be yourself. It's okay, kid. And that was really it. And that's what i would say to your to to your listeners out there you know you have unbelievable opportunity you'd almost have to work overtime to fail in this environment think about what i just said you would have to go out of your way to fail in this environment i mean really you've got people And don't just limit it to being a comedian and and creating, you know, do podcasts, do Internet, do web, uh, write, express yourself, you know, get out, do apps because your creativity is your creativity. It's creative energy. Send it in a number of different ways with the Internet. You'd have to go back 500 years to come up with an invention to the printing press, the printing press. You'd have to go back to the printing press to come up with an invention that's even close to the internet and what you have as a tool to give you global distribution. You're starting to see it. You, you know, you're starting to see music stars who were unknown sitting in a different country, get up on the web and all of a sudden they're a global sensation. You couldn't do that without the internet. You you have to work overtime not to get it done with the with the with this platform and these tools and opportunities and doors that are available to you now. I wish I'd had this back in 1993 at this level. I wish I'd had it. But uh it's phenomenal. I mean, look, Rupert Murdoch spent his life pursuing global distribution. And that's what he pursued. He's got satellites in South America, Europe, Asia, America, he's got television stations and and distribution systems on almost all the continents, if not all the continents. He's pursuing global distribution. You have it with Broadband. Create, make it. Because I'm telling you, you know the audience better than anybody in LA and New York. Because the problem is they're in LA and New York and they fly over the country in private jets and they don't know what's going on in the middle of the country. I was fortunate as a comedian to go on tour. And open for Lionel Richie, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Whitney Houston, Al Jarreau, Smokey Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., and they took me all over the country, and I got to know the audience.
0: Byron Allen, you are a monster. (laughs) This has been one of the most amazing, amazing things, just sitting down with you. It's been so, so awesome. And I'm just so honored to have you here, and you said it about three different times. It's not a hundred yard dash; it's a marathon, and this podcast, my friend, is a marathon. it's been a marathon <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, and for me, thank you because at the end of the day it's a, you know for my wife, Jennifer. And my my daughter Chloe and, and and who's six years old and Olivia who's four and my son Lucas who will be two in December, I really I I, I wanted to do this for you, but more importantly, I wanted to do them to do this for them. I wanted them to always be able to listen to this uh and, and and share it well maybe one day with my grandkids. So, you know, so I wanted to, I'm glad I had the opportunity to sit down and do this and and just kind of go through some of those things that it, you know, that have been monumental events in my life. And if they can help somebody else, I really am happy about that because at the end of the day, the most important thing you must do is understand you are special and get out of your way and let the world see how special you are.
0: Well, Byron Allen, the world saw how special (laughs) you were today. I'm talking about the special, like you are an extraordinary man. There's no one like you, and I am honored to know you. I am honored that you allowed me the opportunity to work with you on Mr. Box Office, and I know I drive you crazy lots of times. And I'm just so grateful that you came here and shared your story and I'm, I'm so proud to know you and I'm really, I'm
1: so grateful that you did this. Oh, thank, you. thank you, Barry. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I love, I love working with you and I really do appreciate you more than you know. I love you, Barry Katz. You don't realize it, but I actually do. Right, thank brother. you. But who else would I hang out with for eight hours? Huh? <laughs> I love you too, brother. Okay, so as
0: always, this is Barry Katz for Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends and if you didn't like the show tell all your friends
2: (laughs) they say it's the glory I'll scream your name put you on shoulder Walk you to fame. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same.